Hey guys, just a quick note before we begin that the show may contain spoilers and adult language, but that's just because we know how to have a good time. Stick around, you'll be glad you did. You are here for me to enlighten you. You ever act like this again, you're barred for life. It's just violent bass. It's kind of embarrassing. If you know you're lying, then you can forget them. Oh, I get it. It's very clever. <laughs> Hello, peoples, and welcome to Esoterica Cinema, the podcast where we take films from the cinematic multiverse and discuss the hell out of them. My name is Jason Peters, and with me, as always, is the man who is currently applying to be Marvel's next great superhero, Mr. Ryan Seabold. What's up, Jason? How's it going, buddy? It is going pretty well over here. And, uh, man, this is going to be a really interesting story because I know that with the most recent phase, which I correct me if I'm wrong, is it phase five that we're on here in the Marvel it Cinematic is, Universe? Yes. We have just okay. started phase five with Ant-Man Quantumania. Okay, great. So, and, uh, you know, Marvel's had a little bit of a, of a problem since uh, stage four. And so uh, my understanding is that they're, they're really trying to just shake things up here for stage five. And part of that is by introducing completely new superheroes that have never existed before in the MCU and giving people in the public the ability to sort of create them and pitch them to the creator. So I understand that being the huge Marvel fan that you are, Ryan, uh, that you've actually decided to throw your hat in the ring. And I would love to hear all about that. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, – wow. It's been quite a journey. I uh, I have been a Marvel fan for some time, admittedly. I know that uh, that is – that will sting some of the ears of our listeners, uh, as this is more of a prestige program. And we talk about <laughs> indie cinema and foreign films. But yes, in my uh, off time, I do partake in junk food of the junk food of cinema. Uh, that is the MCU, and I love it. But yeah, I thought <laughs> I would throw my hat in the ring and uh, be a part of the action. Um, you know, when they say it's the MCU, I really laid into the U part. I'm like, MC me? And they're like, fucking MCU, buddy. And I'm like, <laughs> hell yeah, let's get into this. So I, I'm just waiting for my callback from Kevin, good old Kev, uh, to see if I got the uh, got the role. But yeah, I am, uh, I'm currently working hard on, on trying to come up with a concept for, uh, for, for some different characters sure. that I might, might be able to do. Absolutely, absolutely. So now if you don't mind, and you know, it sounds like you haven't really settled on the character that you're going to pitch yet, which I assume means you haven't like fully had your audition. So, but what I would love to do is kind of discuss with you right here and now some of those characters that you are maybe considering, you know, uh, maybe you've done some sketches on some, maybe you've just been kind of brainstorming. You're in the ideation phase, but if you can, can you share with our listeners and with myself, some of the characters that you're considering? Well, you know, I just really had to lean into my strengths. I had to think about what it is that I was personally good at. You know, what what are things that I would do very well? And maybe it's just, you know, is there room for a guy that sits on the couch uh, in his pajamas or <laughs> or eats Cheez-Its by, you know, the box full? Can you is that like a superpower that you could just eat Cheez-Its like a whole box of Cheez-Its in one sitting? I don't 
Do you think I don't that's- think so, but maybe, okay, so maybe if you're going to, you know, go in this direction, right? Like, because I, I think it's a unique angle. It's like, okay, let's take, let's make an everyman, right? All these superheroes right. always have some sort of crazy power that, you know, none of us could ever really have. But if you yeah. can sort of distill that into something that's a more attainable goal for your Joe everyman. Or or what if I play a villain? What if it's like, what if I'm Chef Boyardee? But it's like, you know, a villainistic version. And I could have all these cool catchphrases. Like I could be like, like Wario. Like Chef Boy RD's nuts. Or get a load of this Chef Boy RD evil. You know, <laughs> things like that. Yeah, definitely. And it's funny too because you know, <laughs> Chef Boyardee is such a childhood nostalgic sort of character. You know, right, it reminds right. you of your childhood and warmth. And maybe that's his thing. You know, he preys on unsuspecting children who they're like, "Oh, Chef Boyardee, my favorite." And he's like, "Yes, yeah, step into my van. I've got some special ravioli in there." Yeah, that's <laughs> correct. <laughs> Spaghetti, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could see that. No, Chef Boyardee, the villain. Absolutely. I'll work on that. Yeah. <laughs> well, Ryan, best of luck to you. I'm personally rooting for the Chef Boyardee character. Looking forward to seeing you in maybe phase five, maybe phase six. We'll see what happens. In the meantime, you and I can talk about movies here on this podcast, and I believe you have a description of today's film for our listeners. I do. Today's film is 2003's Old Boy from director Park Chan-wook. Google has this described as Odesu is an obnoxious drunk bailed from the police station yet again by a friend. However, he's abducted from the street and wakes up in a cell where he remains for the next 15 years, drugged and unconscious when human contact is unavoidable, otherwise with only the television as company. And then, suddenly released, he is invited to track down his jailer with a denouement... That is simply stunning. See, I got that right this week. Uh, last week, if you recall, I totally boned the denouement, denouement uh, pronunciation. I think uh, I say, oh, denouement, denouement. I was going to say, dude, I hate and to tell then, you that you did it because <laughs> it's denouement. <laughs> <laughs> and then suddenly released, he is invited to track down his jailer with a denouement hey! that is simply stunning. <laughs> Look at me. Cultured as fuck. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm cultured as fuck. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, fantastic. But yeah, this one was uh, this one was something, Jason. I uh, had seen this one before. I love this movie. Uh, it definitely is a little disturbing, to say the least. But um, <laughs> yeah, as always, let me ask you, what did you think about this movie, Jason? Normally, I would tell you that I would be happy to let you know right after we listen to this trailer for Old Boy, but this is a Korean film, and as such, all of the trailers are just text-based or in their original Korean. We don't assume that you would be able to understand it, listeners, any more than we would, except if we have anybody in Korea, but I'm pretty sure our charts say that we don't. But if you are listening, thanks, Korea. We appreciate it. Hopefully you dig this film as much as we did because, yeah, Ryan, I really did appreciate this film very, very much. And that's the interesting thing about my viewing experience here because, you know, this is a film that came out 20 years ago, I think, to date. Mm -hmm. And... I always enjoyed the film, but looked at it as a much more straightforward action revenge thriller. Sure. And, you know, as we do on this show, you know, we're able to get our hands on some additional research. We put the work in. We put the effort. 
we buy the DVDs with all the commentaries and special features and all of that. So we learn a lot more about what went into the film from the filmmakers themselves. And as is almost always the case with all of these movies, so much more thought went into so many more aspects of this production, the direction, the acting, the, the styling of the characters, all of that than I appreciated before. But also I think being older this time on my viewing, it's a case where it kind of disturbed me more than it did when I was younger. And okay. uh, I always remember it being very disturbing, obviously, and you think about it, but it kind of hit differently now. I don't know if it's because I have a kid. I because don't know you have a daughter? Because I'm older. <laughs> yeah, like, that'll yeah. do it. Who's that'll about her age, it. right, in this movie? <laughs> Could be something. I don't know. But yeah, but yeah it's just uh, it, it definitely. And the, the other interesting thing, too, is that you obviously remember that ending, right? Even if you maybe don't recall sure. the exact nature in which it hits. So when it happens, you know, the first time you see the movie, you know, once they kind of have the 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 sex scene in the middle of it, you know, you don't really think too much of it. Not but at all. This time around, it's like I know what this is, and this sure. sucks and is uncomfortable. Yes, <laughs> correct. Yeah, yeah. The 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 first time you probably watched it back in you know two thousand five, two thousand six. You know, we're just graduating film school, and you you know you watch it and you're like, oh, that's terrible. But now. As you have uh, a daughter of your own, I can only imagine the, the response being more akin to, <laughs> this poor guy, why did you do this to him? It's the worst thing you could do. <laughs> I will, uh. I, uh, along with what you're saying too, um, one thing that I do have in my notes right out the top is that this is a lot more melodramatic than I remember. Um, sure. Younger, you know, 20 some odd year old Ryan uh, watching this. Fresh out of film school remembers as much like you said, like an action film. I remember the the hallway hammer scene and all of those things, you know, and uh, obviously with the twisted ending, um, you know, it just but that in my memory, I was waiting for a twisted revenge movie. But this, you know, right down to the music is something that I can't wait to speak with you about, because that was uh, something I had uh, not remembered anything about as well. That stood out to me very much more this time as I was paying attention to it. But yeah, uh, this was uh, there's a lot of meat on the bone and I can't wait to get in do it with you here. I think this lends itself very well to uh, to an episode. I agree. So let's go ahead and jump into it, Ryan. I just need a good place for us to start. As always, Jason, let's start at the beginning. Great place. Wonderful place to start, I would say. At the beginning when the film opens, first of all, there are no studio card sounds, which was an intentional decision. So it's funny. Uh, so his, 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 they're actually... In English, you don't pronounce the W in his name. Uh, so it would be Park Chan Ook, actually, is how would you would oh, say that. Okay. Yeah. So um I also noticed they do the old last name, first name, swip swap. Uh sometimes it's Chen Chenook Park, sometimes it's Park Chanook, depending on where you're looking for him at. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so and and to all of our listeners, we will be kind of vacillating between an, uh, like different names. Like you know, sometimes I'll call him O, sometimes I call him Dai, sometimes I call him Dai Su. Right? It's all sort of the same characters, just because of yeah, the way that the names are in Korean. But I think it'll be pretty easy to follow who we're talking about here. So again, no studio cards, and instead there's this very sort of soft orchestral music that plays. And this was sort of a little brief red herring that the director decided to play on the audience. Wherein, you know, he wanted that immediate sort of smash to the aggressive music, right? When we get that opening shot of Odai Su and he, he's standing there in silhouette. 
and we see him and he's holding another man off the side of the building. We don't know why. The camera's zooming into his darkened face, again, silhouetted because the sun is behind him. And after that, we cut to a very different medium close-up of the same man looking very different, sitting with a bloody nose on a bench in a police station. He identifies himself as Odai Su, who is played by Choi Min Sik, I believe is how you pronounce that. And he is drunk. He is rowdy. The cops are trying to control him. And we see through a sort of montage that it's also his daughter's birthday. And the insinuation being that instead of being there for that, he's out getting drunk. Now, there is also a very funny cut where he's just being super rowdy and aggressive. And then we cut to these larger, younger men who have obviously been detained and they're sitting around him. And all of a sudden, he's just very meek and quiet. And even when he has to cough, he like sort of does so into his sweatshirt very meekly. And so I thought that was a really funny little moment. And very quickly, he's picked up by his friend. And of course, being the type of person that he is, he's going to flip off the cops on his way out of the building, at which point he calls his family from a payphone. It's raining very dark outside. And as his friend takes the payphone, Daisu goes missing, setting up our film as well as a second credit sequence? Question mark? I didn't think it was odd to have two credit sequences there. I but thought not. that too. Yeah. Yeah. The only thing I thought is maybe there were, you know, not being able to read Korean, maybe it was like the same credit sequence, but kind of split into or something like that. Sure, like maybe there's yeah. different information that I wasn't able to see. Just kind of continued on. But the, the the break in between was a little awkward, just how long it was. And then like the credits are still going. It's like, oh, OK, we're still in the titles. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, Ryan, so the first thing I'll tee you up on here is, well, let me actually just first mention that the film originally started with that whole jail sequence, that whole Mm -hmm. montage being much longer. It was actually an 11 minute sequence. Weird. The deleted scene of the entire sequence is actually available on uh, some of the physical media that's out there so you can watch it. It's all the same information, just drawn out much longer. So we certainly didn't need it. I think it was a very wise decision to go ahead and trim that down. Yeah, you get it. But yeah, exactly. Uh, Also worth mentioning, it's the only shot or rather it's the only sequence in the entire film that was not shot or rather developed using bleach bypass. So it's before all the, yes, for everything, all uh, everything is kind of gone to shit and, you know, gets way extreme and all of that. So this is when life is still normal. And as such, it's photographed using uh, normal photography with a normal, processing process now what i want to ask you is there's a lot of great aspects to this film and we're going to talk about all of them but i think that the most impressive and sort of high level is the direction on this film and everything that trickles down as a result of that direction and the thought and the unique approaches to filmmaking that our director park chan uk took on this film I think that's what elevates this from maybe just being a sort of straightforward genre film that kind of has like a 70s influence to really art. It really is a piece of artwork. It's just influenced by all of these very sort of genre trappings and genre hallmarks. So you're getting that high-low aesthetic that personally for me I just love. It works for me every single time. Let's take some – sort of interesting pulpy type of material and present it in its most polished form. You get wonderful movies like this. So 
my question to you is, first of all, do you agree with everything that I said about uh, the uh, just now about the direction? And uh, if so, you know, what aspects of this film impressed you most from that standpoint? Yes. The, the, for, the answer wholeheartedly, <laughs> yes. I love this movie uh, for so many reasons. And I think I loved I loved it more on this viewing because, uh, look, this movie is a little disturbing and it is going to unsettle sure. you. Um and leave you kind of sitting in your own stew a little bit when the credits roll at the end. But it's not so disheartening or or off-putting like Requiem for a Dream, for example, or something like that, where... So for a okay. long time, I saw this as that, and like I never went back to it. That's why I think this is the, the only the second time I've seen this film. Um, but I would go okay. back and watch this again right now. Like This is such a fantastic sure. movie on so many levels. Like I said, the cinematography... Um, the, the music and score, uh, the camera movement, uh, we're going to talk about all these things, um, you know, uh, on a more ground level basis as we go through the film, but, uh, high level. Yeah, dude, this is, this movie slapped, you know, it's worth mentioning that Park Chan-wook was just getting warmed up. Like that man has made a lot of movies at this point and he's teamed up with Bong Joon-ho in a lot of ways, uh, for, for things like Snowpiercer and they've, you know, created a friendship or kinship, uh, both coming out of South Korea. Um, but uh, prior to this, his big, you know, real claim to fame outside of a couple small films was Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance as a, the, the kickoff to his Vengeance trilogy, which I have not mm-hmm. seen. Uh, and that Same. was very, very poorly received. Um, it, it didn't really? do very well on Metacritic or Rotten Tomatoes. It was sitting like a 50% on both. It also tanked oh, wow. at the box office. Um, I think it only made... Uh, $2 million in the box office. Um, whereas, uh, by comparison, this one had a budget of 3 million and brought in 15 million at the box office. So, uh, nice. this one was way more of a success, but you know, all that to say, uh, he was on the come up, he was learning some things. And I think that, uh, you know, where he was sharpening his teeth on some of these earlier films, old boy was where we can really say he hit the ground running and started, uh, excelling in, in his craft. Uh, you know, I admittedly have not seen, enough of his films um i have told you that uh, decision to leave is on my short list of something to watch. his most recent film from 22 yeah uh, is on my short Netflix list of movie. movies to do for the uh to do for um the mini reviews so it's not a cool. netflix movie actually uh i don't think oh, really? so yeah i, I, oh, do I believe thought he did it for them i don't believe so and so much as usually you can't get uh, those films anywhere but Netflix, uh, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, this one that I, that I, would be true, yeah. Okay. I found well, on there Apple you go. TV. So, yeah, um, uh, that was one of 2022's top rated films, and I have yet to see it. But films like Stoker, uh, The Handmaiden, um, you know, Lady Vengeance, and stuff like that, I, I would love to see more of these films, and I just haven't. Same, yeah, absolutely. Now, after the second credit sequence, we'll go ahead and call it. We see that Daisu is in isolation. There's actually a great single take shot of his face visible from the very bottom of a door that has like a sliding window, which is where they like slide in the food. And we see the feet of a guard walk into frame and his face is like trying to squeeze out of it and he's pleading with the guard. He's very talkative in this scene, which is something that's interesting to note because this is something that's going to be bred out of him very quickly, right? He's going to spend most of the film being a much more silent type, but we see in the early jail scene as well as this scene that before all of this happened to him, he was definitely a talker. And so once the guard ignores him and moves along, 
we are introduced to his cell, which very strongly resembles a hotel room. There's a single window. There's a rudimentary shower. And he employs voiceover to tell us about what has been going on and the nature of you know his imprisonment. So funny thing, first of all, Ryan, uh, before I, could, I explain this, is just that they initially conceived his cell as a very standard sort of gray prison cell, right? And it was just going to sort of be like every other prison cell that you've ever seen. And a lot of what Chan Uk did for this film is really start to reconsider a lot of very traditional trappings. So he initially even conceived it as like a very straightforward sort of noir film, but then kept asking himself, what can we do differently? What would be more interesting? And made all of these little tweaks along the way. Uh, And one of those was, again, deciding to have the cell resemble more of like a hotel room than a standard prison, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think it justifies keeping him there for 15 years. Um, you know, sure. I, I think that it, it makes the cat and mouse game between that and the person who put them put him there a little more intriguing as well. Um, because eventually he's let out and there's this whole, you know, cat and mouse thing of come and get me. And, uh, they, yeah. each of them could have killed the other on many occasions and they choose not to because they're both in this kind of, you know, hero villain thing together and, and tied together like Batman and the Joker kind of deal. So, uh, yeah. I thought that it, it made the dynamic more interesting from his captor's standpoint, uh, by, by not putting him in a center block, tiny cell. Yeah. Because th- that was just... You know, to him, that was the tee up. It wasn't that wasn't the end game. I think that if he was in a cinder block cell and he was going mad and clawing at the walls. Also, you know, it gives him something to do in there. They've given him a television. We you know, we'll talk about this. You know, I'm sure about to bring this all up. But uh, if he was in there for, you know, uh, a large portion of the first act while they show him going mad and everything leading up to it, you know, taking us along for this journey with our protagonist, I think it would be very boring for us to watch. And it's not giving him anything to do. You know, he would just be sitting there the whole time. And it, th- that whole scene would have had to be done in a very quick montage that may have only lasted five minutes because you get the idea, you know? Yeah, he also would have been going crazier than he already does, which we see in the next right. scene where we understand that he's been gassed nightly. We see that there's a news program implying that his wife has been murdered and O has been framed for that murder so that they can sort of explain that away. We see him hallucinating ants coming out of his body. And we also see him make some suicide attempts that are ultimately futile. I imagine they go in there and they are able to stop the bleeding before he's able to pass away. After which point, Daisu decides that he's going to write a diary of misdeeds and begin to train himself to fight and box against himself. And uh, just against the wall right there. Bloody knuckle status and everything. Now in a fortuitous night one day, he actually gets an extra chopstick with his dinner. These are metal chopsticks, and he's going to use this chopstick over the next 12 years to dig a hole through the wall, which he's actually able to do, at which point we get a sort of nice split screen of various socioeconomic events unfolding as he's working to escape. And with one month left, a woman shows up after he's been gassed, falls asleep. She's a hypnotist, tells Dai to look away into this field. We see the field, the camera tracks across it. It's actually a very surreal shot because it ends up landing on a purple suitcase that's lying in the middle of this field. The suitcase tips over and pops open and Odaisu himself pops out. 
Now, Ryan, what's what's awesome and interesting about this particular exchange is in addition to being visually interesting and a unique way to set up your story, it sets up a very strong theme, a running theme over the course of this film, and that is that Daisu's captor, who we'll talk about very soon, is always, always, always one step ahead of him and is constantly working and seeking to invalidate Odaisu's best efforts, whatever that may look like, right? So in this case, what we see is that this man has spent close to 15 years ultimately trying to claw his way out of this room. And so what do they do is one month before he's ready to escape of his own accord, they put the kibosh on it and they go in and they take him out and they move him out, which really at the end of the day invalidates pretty much his 15 years of efforts. And so again, this really sets up the fact that over the course of this film, it's going to be a series of O making moves that are ultimately thwarted by the captor because he fully knows and expects them and is this conniving genius, which I thought was really interesting. Like it's a revenge thriller that is actually when you break it down, when all is said and done, it's the antagonist story, like the antagonist's revenge. You know, sure. you think it, it frames it as though it's Odaisu's revenge, but ultimately it's our captor that gets all of the revenge by being one step ahead of everything all along the way. Now, one of the things that we see is Daisu awakens and he finds a, another man is preparing to commit suicide. This is ultimately the man from the beginning. He's holding the dog. And there's actually a really powerful moment before that scene is set up where he he touches the man's face and he's like smelling him. And he's like he is so enamored by humanity and experience humanity for the first time in 15 years. It's, it's almost like a, a very intimate moment between the two of them even. And at that point, the man himself falls back and, oh, grabs him by the tie and calls back that initial shot. And I thought that was interesting. It's a series of tiny little gotcha moments that maybe don't fold the story over itself in very dramatic ways. However... When you first see that opening shot and Dai is holding the guy over the side of the building, you're assuming that that's either his captor or some one of the captor's henchmen, someone that has been involved with his situation and that he's right. seeking revenge on them. But it actually turns out to be yet another red herring, much like that soft music at the beginning of the movie where, oh, it's just this random guy that happened to be there who commits suicide and Dai actually – well, ostensibly saves him for a moment before ultimately not saving him because of his callousness. So – and that's another interesting thing too is that normally you know, the protagonist is going to be a sympathetic character where you know, he, he basically tells this stranger, O does, his entire story and the, char- and the stranger's like, oh, man, you know, that's, that's crazy. You know, let me tell you my story. And he just straight gets up and walks away. He's <laughs> like, no, nope, not here for you, bro. Don't care about your story. I'm here for me. no time for this. Right. <laughs> and we even, like, see the ramifications of that where in the next shot he's leaving the building and we see in the background the character fall from the sky on top of a car. So his callousness led to his, in fact, committing suicide, whereas there is a – version of this story where if Dai sits down and gives him 10 minutes of his time, maybe he doesn't go through with that. Now, Ryan, one other aspect of this film, standout aspect of this film, is the cinematography. So did you have a chance yes. to really do much digging on on who shot this film and what he's about and all that? 
I did a surface level, um, not so much on this film in particular. I think you're going to have more information on this film. Uh, real quick, let me just hop in and say that um, apologies to the listeners. This is uh, perhaps the first case ever on this show where the film was not available at the time we picked it. Um, we vet all our oh, movies yeah. that go on our list. Uh, to make sure that they're available for everyone to watch and stream or rent or something to get their hands on this movie uh, so that you can join along in the fun with us. And uh, hey, I'd like to join along in the fun with us. So I went on <laughs> to go rent this movie. Jason had already owned it. And uh, not only is it not available to stream, it's not available to rent and it's barely available to buy. Like you kind of have to find like what's out there is out there. I don't think they're printing any more copies. So yeah, uh, the 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 outlet that I purchased the film from, I got literally the last copy that they had. So this one was a hard one. All that to say, I got mine in much later than Jason uh, was able to view this. So Jason's going to come at you with a lot of hard hitting facts. Um, I didn't have quite as much time before recording to get on some of the extra features and all of that. But surface level, I did write research, uh, Mr. Chung, uh, Chung Hoon Chon. Um, I, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, but, um, yeah, this guy crushes and he's been with Park Chan-wook pretty much his entire career, uh, continue to go shoot things like the handmaiden and stuff like that for him. Uh, but he does a lot of hyper saturated movies too. A lot of stuff with color, like last night in Soho, uh, yeah. hotel Artemis, even it, uh, the remake, um, that came out recently, which I loved the cinematography of it. I thought the warm very tones, good. very and, strong. Yeah, yeah. He did such a great job of making it feel kind of retro in that, you know, Stranger Things way, but just like in a hyper saturated kind of brought his own little vibe to it. And say what you will about, you know, Last Night in Soho. He also shot Obi-Wan Kenobi for Disney Plus. Dude, I love uh, Last Night recently. in Soho. I don't know. What, I, I don't know if that film has a bad reputation or not, but I adore that film. I, I think it, it got great. mixed reviews, but it's very well shot. And it's, you know, yeah, this guy crushes, though. That's the moral of the story. And he did a great job here. So I didn't know about the Bleach Bypass, um, which definitely explains the kind of muted tones, even though they're using a yeah. lot of bright colors. It's not like so in your face with the saturation. So it gives it a more like dystopian vibe, um, but still allows him to play in those color realms uh, with a lot of greens and reds and yellows and things like that. But, you know, kind of muted him down a little bit. So, yeah, this guy did a, did a phenomenal job. Um, also, you know, I don't know if this is the time and place to talk about it, but the camera movement. Um, sure. There is yeah, go ahead. very little uh, in this whole film where the camera is not moving in some way subtly or yeah. very fast. It's always moving uh, to keep you interested and engaging. Um, I, I did see a featurette about the cinematography and Park Chan-wook said that uh, he talked with the DP and basically they saw this as a bit of a dance in so much as even the music that's playing throughout. A lot of it is very operatic and waltzy, um, yes. which is very strange uh, by comparison to the subject matter that you're dealing with. But you've got like this waltzy kind of like operatic, uh, very high, you know, highbrow music, uh, concertos and stuff like that playing. And then you get these like slow, you know, dolly shots or steady cam shots or tracking shots. And, you know, the whole thing is just 
you know, th- this dance between the camera, the the actors and talent, and then what's going on in post production, like the music and score and stuff like that. So. Very, very good stuff. Absolutely. Now, I do just want to rewind real quick here. Couple of quick notes. First of all, with regards to what Ryan was saying about the availability of this film. Yeah, we could not find it anywhere streaming online, but there are rumors that I believe Neon is getting ready to release a 20th anniversary edition. It's actually entirely possible by the time this episode drops, like you could be listening to this now and it could be back up. I believe it was just a licensing change where they had to take it all down and it's going to be up definitely before the end of 2023. That sort of seems to be the rumor. But no, Ryan, I actually did not own this film. Much like yourself, I ended up having to buy it because I couldn't stream it anywhere. And I actually got similarly, I got mine from Amazon and I got Amazon's last copy of their 4K now, oh, here's wow. why, now, here's why I want to bring this up. Two funny factoids. First, humble brag, 4K. This guy could afford 4K Blu-rays. Got it. Okay. Whatever. Right. Do, do not sit here and pretend <laughs> that you don't have three, three 4K projectors sitting in your house right now. <laughs> do not even go there, sir. Shut the hell up. This guy can afford 4K. Got it. All right. All right. Who has a 100-inch screen and a dedicated <laughs> viewing room with a 4K projector? It is yeah. not your boy, Jason. Let me tell you yeah. that. So I do not appreciate the smear campaign as though I'm some hoity-toity imperialist looking down upon the people for their viewing. Yeah. (laughs) No. So here's the funny thing, though. This is the reason that I bring it up. Uh, The first funny anecdote is that the 4K that I bought ended up being a Region B 4K, and it was a two-disc. So it came with one 4K disc and one Blu-ray disc. Now, for everybody listening that does not know this, I'm I'm about to blow your mind with regards to the fact that every single 4K disc that is manufactured, with exception to seven to nine very specific examples, is region-free. Let me say that one more time. Every single 4K disc that is out there across the world is region-free. You can buy an American 4K and play it on your UK player, Region B. You can buy a Region 4 4K and play the 4K on your American player. So bear this in mind that when you're looking at 4Ks, you can get them from anywhere across the world. That That is mind-blowing to me, first of all. So just know that. That is dope. And yeah. And so, yeah, so so I got the Region B 4K and it came with a secondary disc that was a Blu-ray and had a documentary on it and as well as a video essay. And I couldn't watch that because that one was a Blu-ray and it was Region B locked. But disc one had literally all the other special features on it. And because that was a 4K, I was able to watch it. So, again, for everyone who didn't know that 4K players are region unlocked. An amazing thing. The other thing that I would like to mention is for anybody that doesn't know what Bleach Bypass is, basically we're going back to the days, it really wasn't that long ago, 20 years ago, but we're going back to the days when film was shot on actual film and in order to finish processing the negative to get the final image, it has to go a process wherein it's sort of washed in a chemical solution. And part of that solution involves bleach. What they did is they bypassed using that bleach in the processing process. And by doing that, 
it, to your point, Ryan, kind of dulls the image, but it also sort of heightens up the grain. So you notice the image is much grainier than other images at the time. And it kind of heightens the almost like the silver shimmer effect. Uh, Kaminsky used this most famously for like Minority Report and for Saving Private Ryan. So if for anybody listening that has seen those films, if you picture them, they have a very specific way that they look. They're heavily grainy. The the motion, the colors, right? They have a sort of hyper real look. All of that is achieved with this chemical process called bleach bypass. So just wanted to clarify that for anyone who may not know what exactly. Yeah, it's like intentionally unfinished. And um, and it leaves kind of this, like you said, like this weird look to it. And once you know it, you could distinguish it. You're like, wait a minute. But um, now a lot of that, all that stuff gets done digitally, of course, in post. And you could simulate a lot of these looks uh, in post production. Yeah, but, they um, have video then, filters called bleach bypass that you can literally throw on your image and it'll manipulate it so that it looks the same way that all these films did in the 90s. Right, the 2000s, right. Early 2000s, rather. But I would dare say that if you hadn't bleach bypassed this, it probably would look like, uh, you know, something more along the lines of Last Night in Soho or Ant-Man Quantumania or something like that, where it's like super hot. Because they do use a lot of color in this film. Um, it's just yeah. Muted. It reminded me of Jordan Cronenweth's work in Fight Club very much. Sure. More. Yeah. That's a yeah. good comparison. I like that a lot. Same yeah. type vibe, and- too. And and the other uh, just last thing I'll comment on about what you said is with regards to the camera movement. I don't know if you saw this, but before this film, Park Chan-ook would only use camera movement if he could motivate it by story or character. And so it took him a while to really get to the point that he could psychologically sort of allow himself to do that. But then once he realized that he was working within a genre film and that it was maybe not meant to be treated with the same approach as some of his other films. He was more willing to do some of these genre associated type of techniques. So the other example of that would be like montage, you know, before, you know, you and I went to film school and, you know, for whatever reason, yeah, the montage is looked down upon. It's considered lazy among cinephiles and among filmmakers, right? It's like, oh, that's too easy of a way to tell your message or something like that, right? So, but in a, in a, in a genre film, right? Like uh, last week's The Monster Squad, right? Or a couple weeks back, rather. That, you know, they have the that's the perfect time. That's when you want the 80s montage right? to the to the <laughs> right. rock song. That's hopefully going to sell you some CDs and all of that, you know. But, yep. you know, with 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 him being a more serious filmmaker, he previously looked down upon that as well as as we've learned voiceover. Right. Voiceover is a technique that is looked down upon by screenwriters. But then you have Charlie Kaufman, arguably the greatest screenwriter of all time. That's who I would say is. And he employs voiceover very liberally. So I think that the great thing about this film, and Bleach Bypass is a perfect example of it, voiceover, narration, montage, et cetera, a perfect example of it, is the classic idea of learning the rules so that you can know how to break them later on, right? Sure. And I think that's what this film does best is they knew how to break the rules in the best ways to yield positive results and not just in this way that allows them to be self-indulgent. And what's going to serve the story that you're telling and the characters that you're telling it about? They're all just tools in your toolbox. So, you know, just because a tool is looked down upon or whatever, it's still in your toolbox. So grab it if you want to use it, (laughs) if it's going to serve your purpose. Absolutely. And then where they bring in their artistic flair, so to speak, is the fact that is the way that they utilize 
those different aspects of filmmaking. So throughout this film, for example, you're pretty much looking at two shots, two styles of shot the entire time, which is wide lens, widest angle possible to the point that even where the edges are distorted, right? And it's got that little sort of how 9000 curvature around the outsides of it. Or telephoto extreme close-up, yes. right, with just right on the person's face and everything in the background. And what that reflects is that this is a story of extremes, right? Sure. And so naturally, we're going to have an extreme filmmaking perspective and approach to this film. And so, again, they quite literally only exist on either extreme of, you know, like borderline fish eye lens, you know, 10, 12 millimeter lens wide or super telephoto buck 20, whatever, right? With no in between. And I think that's, again, a very artistic way to approach traditionally genre influenced film and filmmaking techniques. And Park Chan Wook was quoted as saying uh, on the featurette that I saw about the cinematography, he, he chose those two focal lengths, really, um, because the, the longer lenses would create more of a bouquet or blur out the background and compress space. So, when, you know, and his, even when he was shooting things, like sometimes his medium shots or uh, medium wide shots, he would shoot with a telephoto just to blur out the background. So you isolated those characters and made them feel lonely or made them feel alone in that in that moment. Um, and separated them yeah. from anything going on in the background. And then other times he would use a super wide lens, but shoot it, you know, even if you have to shoot it super close where it would warp the, you know, facial features and stuff like that with, you know, because you said like some, it rounds it differently and stuff. Um, but yeah, because he wanted the the deep space. He wanted the deep focus. So that way it made that character feel more a part of his surroundings. So he's telling a story visually um, even through the lens uh, choices that he's making here. Um, and then there were a couple of times where towards the end of the film, you had the uh, villainous character looking into the mirror and then um, uh, Odesu is in the background over his shoulder. So he would frame the character like frame left and then have Odesu over his shoulder um, behind him looking also towards the mirror. But he couldn't get that both those things tack sharp and so they shot them separately and did a composite. So there is some compositing yeah. in this as well, where even the the lens choices weren't serving his purpose. So he had to rely on some digital reinforcement as well. So um, all that to say uh, and reinforce what you're trying to say, which that is that uh, all these choices were done very specifically. It's not, not just like, oh, I want a close up or oh, I want a medium shot. Um, he's creating mood here. Um, yeah, I'm isolating this character. I want this character to feel alone right now or feel a part of his surroundings or or the surroundings are a part of this story. I'm going to frame this character frame left or frame it center, whatever. Like these are all, you know, again, tools in his toolbox that he's, you know, pulling out to try to create a certain ambiance and, uh, and tell a story a different way. Absolutely. Now, when we get back to the story, we see that O has met some street thugs, and that's a chance for us to see that he is going to put his training to use from when he was boxing against himself inside his cell, promptly kicks all of their asses, and he is finds himself in front of a restaurant. A man approaches him, hands him a cell phone and a wallet, and Daisu goes into the sushi restaurant where we are introduced to our main supporting character, Mido. Is, by the way, do you know if it's Mido or Mido? I do not. Okay, I'm going with Mido. Apologize if it's the other one. 50-50 chance I'm throwing my chips on red here. So yep. the funny thing is that in the script, this restaurant, this sushi restaurant, was originally called Akira as a little tip of the cap to Akira Kurosawa, who is one of his, if not favorite, filmmaker. Could imagine why. 
<laughs> However, it turned out that the film or rather the restaurant that they chose was called Mediterranean and it would have cost money to change the name. So they didn't. They just stick with Mediterranean because oh, I didn't know I'd have to pay for it. That's that's an entirely different thing. <laughs> <laughs> Die walks in. He asks to eat something alive, after which point the cell phone he was just given rings. He gets a call from his tormentor. He can't identify who it is, at which point the chef Mito brings him the octopus. He promptly eats it in kind of a squirmish scene where we see the octopus tentacles writhing and wrapping around his wrist and face as he chews it live. But he promptly passes out, and when he wakes up, he finds that he is in this Chef Mito's apartment, and she is reading the journals that he has written that have sort of outlined all of his misdeeds. He's rightfully defensive, grabs them, goes back, you know, turns his back on him, goes back to sleep, at which point she decides that she's going to use the bathroom, brings a knife with her, thankfully, because as she is doing so, he runs in and attempts to sexually assault her, having been 15 years since he's been with a woman. She fights back. Conks him out with the back of the knife. He's embarrassed, runs away. And when she comes out, she's very understanding for someone who has just been sexually assaulted and says that, you know what? I like you. I'm just not ready right now. So, uh, you know, instead of uh, assaulting me in the bathroom, why don't when I'm ready, I'll sing you this song. It's this very specific song. And that'll let you know that I'm ready. And at that point, you can give it to me. Now that whole scene was very strange to me and very off-putting by today's standards. Um, I know in the end they kind of explain that a little bit, uh, and we'll get to that. And I don't mean to spoiler alert this whole thing, but uh, yeah, because she was like, "It's okay, it's understandable. You haven't had it in so long, and I did bring you back to my house just to tell you no. So that's on me." And I was like, "Wait, what? <laughs> like, no, you're allowed well, to." Yeah. Uh, bring a dude like you were trying to anyway i don't know yeah well so no and and that's very funny and you know sometimes it can be very difficult to understand when you're dealing with these directors that make very serious decisions about what their characters would and would not do it can be difficult to know if it's the character or if it's the director speaking through the character that's right? a great point that's a great point yeah, and so, you know, unfortunately, there's been enough cases of your Woody Allenses of the world where it's like, oh, going back and seeing that all your characters are old men obsessed with young, hot women, eh, that doesn't play so well knowing what I know about you later on in life and what would go on to happen with your own stepdaughter that we all just kind of have to pretend didn't happen and stuff, right? So, like, it, it, it can be very easy to assume that – this is all the sort of fantasy wish fulfillment, if you will, of some ultimately, you know, maybe perhaps depraved people. It might be kind of a strong word, uh, but in certain cases, it might be a little bit light. Regardless, that is not the case with uh, this Mr. Uh, Park Chan-wook, Park Chan-ook, excuse me. This is, this is something where he is intentionally having her respond in a very – outside of the norm way. And he knows that it kind of doesn't play well, especially in today's, he talked about that, but the whole 
reason that she does that is because it's a reflection of the whole hypnosis reveal that we'll that's come what later I mean. on that right. we'll talk about. Yeah, correct. So um, it is so, kind of yeah, explained so, later. It just in the yeah, moment it was weird. <laughs> correct. Yeah. So it can be uncomfortable, and and again, it's it's just you know, frankly, it's unfortunately difficult to know what a director's intentions are. With scenes like this, right? Or even, you know, you hear, like you've talked about before on Zardoz, right? The Sean Connery thing of like, hey, we've got to do the sex scene a seventh time, right? <laughs> right. Uh, and you're like, oh, geez, that's not so great. Uh, look, uh, Good luck here. But uh, still respect you as an actor, but oh, I really wish you didn't do that. So, so no, yeah. this is just him really inhabiting the minds of his character and having them service the story while ultimately sort of understanding that like, yeah, some people aren't going to quite get that. But it's the decision that I made and I'm rolling with it. So and I can I can respect it. It also shows her as a broken character, too. Right. Like, I think it motivates why she's because, you know, this is only the first of many, um, you know, situations that Odesu puts her in. Right. That is compromising, not necessarily by his own design, but the fact that she sticks with him through quote unquote thick and thin, you know, uh, as he goes through and chases down this, like she could have easily just patched him up and sent him on his way, but she decides to join him on this journey, which, um, you know, kind of sets her up. And then she talks about her time alone on the subway. We're going to talk about that here shortly and stuff like that, just how lonely she is. And so I I do think that as awkward as it is, I think it services the character well to show that she's in this with him now from here on out. They're a team, you know? Regardless of his faults. Yeah, 100%. And to that point, from this point forward, they are a team and they they become kind of a, I don't know, a Mulder and Scully or any sort of investigative team, minus the supernatural, of course. I don't really watch cop procedurals, so I don't know who the law and order version of these guys are, right? But the the, the male and female detective who joined forces in pursuit of the bad guy. Wheels and the leg man from American Dad. <laughs> sure, wheels in the leg, man. Let's go with some uh, old school chips inspired uh, 70s sitcom action here. <laughs> and they look for clues as to who the captor is. We do see Chan Uk employing the montage as Miyu and Daisu examine the records. And they're trying to determine, or they rather, they ultimately do determine uh, that they can find the captor by locating the maker of these dumplings. And we see through a quick flashback. That one time, so Daisu has consisted on a diet of nothing but dumplings every single night, all 15 years that he was in this. And for what it's worth, they actually look pretty good, but of course you're going to get tired of eating the same damn thing over and over again. But one of the days, he had a little piece of receipt paper that was sort of folded in with the food that he pulled out of his mouth, and there was a quick reference to Blue Dragon on part of the receipt. So they've got this clue. The two of them are going to call up and try all these different dumplings to see if they can find out which Blue Dragon it is. Eventually they do, and they are able to follow the delivery person. They put in an order to be sent to the place that they go to every night, of course, very familiar with it. Daisu is able to follow the delivery person to go into the six and a half floor is ultimately where these guys are and where the prison cell is that he was being held is. And that's when we set up that, you know, sort of centerpiece sequence, the one take of the whole fight and everything. Before that, we do actually get sort of a, a funny shot where it's a wide shot of O with the hammer pointed at the guard's head, and there's the little red line, like Pulp Fiction style, that is superimposed <laughs> on the that. film that goes from yep. the hammer to the forehead. 
What I thought was really funny about this is in the commentary track, Chan Ook mentions that he actually added this scene in after the fact as a joke. It was not written into the script specifically because that he thought Choi Min Seek, the lead actor in the film, was mm-hmm. trying way too hard to look cool. And he's like, ah, you think you're cool, huh, buddy? I'm going to put a joke in here so nobody looks at how you're hamming it up over here. We're just going to take uh, the gas out of this shit right out the gate before yeah, exactly. it even starts. <laughs> so, you know, knock off the posing, buddy. We're here to make a movie. Stop trying to, try, sure. stop trying to be Mr. Cool over here. Yes. And they're obviously very good friends, you know, so they do stuff like that. Uh, not as good of friends as with the uh, music uh, uh, supervisor that we'll talk about here shortly. But, but yeah, yeah, like I loved that. Park Chan-wook was able to get a little silly throughout uh, every now and then, like considering how serious of a tone this film has to carry, like the emotional weight and gravitas from the opening sequence in the jail, like how silly he was acting in there. And then he leaves with like his belly hanging out and like the shirt kind of tied and a (laughs) knot, you know, on his around his midriff and like. Um, and then you have like the subway scene when everybody he's talking about hallucinating with the ants. And then she's like, I saw an ant, this and that. And it's like this giant ant on the subway, you know, she shares away. There's all these little silly little, uh, you know, moments like that, that, uh, even down to when he is eating the octopus, which I could not watch that scene, uh, just a few scenes prior <laughs> to this. That was just too gross for me. Um, <laughs> I thought I remembered that being CGI, but apparently it was practical. No, so. no. They went through apparently three of those things because Ugh. the first the first two were not very lively. Yes. And the third one finally reacted the way that they wanted to. And they were even like sprinkling salt on it to try to get it to respond and stuff. Man. And yeah, it was it was a whole thing. Yeah, that was gross. So, but it was kind of like <laughs> silly, like the way the the tentacle was like flopping around his face and stuff. Like, yeah. you know, there were these moments that kind of added some uh, brief moments of levity and a movie that really could use it. So, absolutely. All uh, all uh, go, going back to your point about Park Chan Wook, like knowing, like having a vision of what story he wanted to tell and was able to see that through, yeah, even if it meant apparently adding things after the fact. Absolutely. So, you know, we have O and he's just found all these screens showing dozens of cells like his. You know, we realize this is now a huge operation. It's not just a one man show. And he tapes the prison owner to his chair with his mouth open in another pretty gruesome sequence. He uses a hammer to remove, I don't know, four to half a dozen teeth. And that sets up our arguable centerpiece of the film. Like I said, that single take, roughly three minute sequence of Daisu fighting about a dozen guards with just his camera while the camera tracks in a wide shock back and forth through this corridor. It's exquisitely choreographed. It also took 17 takes and you saw three that. days yeah. for them to make. And the funny thing, too, is this is actually not a decision that they made in pre-production. This was sort of no. a last minute call. It was originally conceived as a big multi-angle sequence, and I forget. I want to say that it was maybe Choi Min Seek that actually brought up the suggestion, and they were like, "Well, you know, it's gonna it's gonna put a lot on you. You know, you're gonna have to nail this thing. It's that's a pretty tough ask." And he was like, "Let's let's do it," and they did, and it worked really really well. It's obviously one of the scenes that everyone remembers. Yeah, yeah. I guess Park Chan Wook was saying that. After the first couple of takes, it just wasn't feeling right. Um, it, it was missing something. And so they kept going and kept going. Um, and then Choi Man Seek uh, gives credit to Park Chan Wook as potentially setting him up to continue to do more takes because uh, the, the the take that made it into the film was one of the later ones because uh, 
Uh, I guess he had to feel more like he looks more exhausted in those later takes because yeah. of how physically strenuous it is. And Park Chan-wook said that yes. uh, that was something he was glad that they kept going because the further along they would go into these uh, amounts of takes, the more authentic it was looking for someone of his stature and stuff like that. And what's really interesting, uh, two things. Number one, uh, like you said, this is a three-minute one-er, uh, steady cam shot or dolly shot or whatever. It's a single take even though they didn't do it in a single take. Uh, it's all one shot. And But usually, what, what stood out to me is usually in those big, long oneers, when you think of a, a famous single shot like that, usually you're going places. It's a long yeah. tracking shot. It's atonement. It's children of men. You know, you're, Boogie nights. You're, boogie nights, right. Yeah, they're using the camera movement. Goodfellas, of course, the most famous one. Absolutely, the Copacabana scene in Goodfellas. Yes, they're taking you somewhere, and that's... Uh, you know, the purpose for these long shots. And this was really interesting that you they would choose a three minute one uh, shot like that one or two, and, but not go anywhere. Like you're just literally just tracking back and forth, back and forth, almost yeah. like a vi- video game uh, sure. as you're as he's walking through and just uh, getting his ass kicked and kicking some ass and this and that. Yeah, it's um, flat 2D in terms of the way that we're watching it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're all you're just looking, you know, uh, across a corridor and then uh, it breaks at the very end to get a reverse over the shoulder shot. As he looks in the camera and is framed right, you're looking over his right shoulder on the left of screen uh, at this whole trail of bruised and battered bodies uh, that he's left in his wake uh, as he progresses into the elevator. So uh, one thing I will say, uh, we haven't even talked about this yet, but I'll, I'll drop a little nugget that uh, I did get to. Spike Lee's old boy um, that came out a decade after this. Yes. And one of the main things that, uh, number one, it's a turd sandwich. So everybody don't, (laughs) it lives up to its (laughs) reputation. That's what I heard, man. It does not have a good reputation at all. Compared to this, I'll I'll say specifically, um, the fact that I have this to compare it to and I watched them both back to back. uh, Maybe if you hadn't seen this and you were an American audience, you're not interested in subtitles, whatever, whatever. Okay, great. Um, You at least get the gist. But he made some really interesting choices to change that. And we'll get into that, namely with the motivation of the villain and at the end and all of that. I was kind of waiting to pull that rabbit out of my hat till later. But one thing that did stand out to me that, that, uh, that he changed was this scene in particular because everything we're saying, or at least I'm saying, that I liked about this scene um, Spike Lee kind of did the opposite. Josh Brolin looks cool and fresh. He looks like John Wick beating some ass in that movie. He does not uh, look out of shape. He does not look exhausted. He does not look like um, you know a flawed hero. He is ripped and ready to go and beat some ass. And he just rips through those guys. And mm-hmm. the um, camera movement goes... All over the place. Uh, even though there is a lot of steady cam work, you're going down ladders and into other hallways and through, you know, it was almost like Spike Lee looked at that and kind of said, you know, that's kind of boring and flat. Like we should do something more dynamic. Maybe he just wanted to separate himself from it. Obviously not ripping off Park Chan-wook, but yeah, I thought that um, everything that we had just mentioned about this scene that we thought made it feel originally unique and we were like, that's interesting. Spike Lee said, hey, yeah, fuck that. We're doing it like the the more traditional <laughs> way. And so they did, which I thought was interesting. Interesting. Yeah. No, I uh, like I said, I, I just actually I discovered that film's negative reputation when I was looking for the film on streaming online. And all I could find is Spike Lee's old boy everywhere. And then there was all these Reddit threads like, don't watch this. You're going to be looking for old boy. And you're going to find Spike Lee's and it's fucking garbage. Just ignore it all costs. And I was like, right. okay. like, like visceral hatred. You can tell it's a turd sandwich. 
Yeah, yeah. The uh, the the villain who gets his teeth pulled out uh, in the scene directly before this is played by Samuel L. Jackson in that movie with a little mini oh, mohawk. Wow. Yeah. Does he get his teeth removed? Uh, yeah. It's uh, okay. It's it's not as graphic. That was another scene I had to to turn my head for. We've talked about this before <laughs> on the show. No eyes, no teeth. Like that's just our thing, right? Like yeah. I could not watch. Uh, for for like, me, it's also fingernails. I have a real fingernails rough... too. Right, right. Yep. Yeah, with or the toenails. Fingernails. Yeah. Yeah. The extremities. Stay away from the extremities. <laughs> the worst well, I, part of Spike Lee's uh, version, though, is the main villain played by Charlotte O'Copley. The performance is terrible. It's just the worst. Yeah, I've you know, I'm just I'm not a big fan of that guy. I mean, I only really know him from District Nine or District Five or whatever the hell it was. But yep, uh, yeah, that's. Uh, I know some people really like him, and I'm like, based on what? Like, what did he do that you love that I'm missing? I, I would like to know, but regardless. I, I'm not here to tell you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what I can tell you is old boy is not one of those things. Um, he was well, hamming it up. <laughs> so this is actually a great time to sort of bring up this point. So after battling off the initial gang, the elevator opens, and he smiles as there was a reveal of – Another half dozen or so gang members in there with their weapons drawn waiting. And then that's where we get a funny, well-used narrative ellipsis where we cut to the next scene as the elevator opens. He walks out. All of them fall out dead or heavily injured. And But the thing I wanted to talk to you about really is the level of violence in this film. I think it's actually really interesting how hard – the violence can hit and how brutal the film does and can feel when a so much of the violence is really highly stylized and choreographed, you know, even down to Mr. Han's death at the end, you know, where there's the, you know, the almost classical samurai thing where, you know, after you get stabbed, there's like 12 seconds where you don't know it. And then all of a sudden, like you start twitching and then like a, you know, three seconds later, a blood geyser spits out like you see an anime oh, yeah. like that. And those old like there's a lot. So it doesn't in many ways, it's hyper real. In many ways, it doesn't really feel very real. But then there's also this very sort of aggressively realistic violence that is ensued. But the interesting thing is so much of it is done off camera. And I thought that was really interesting. So, you know, what did, what did you think about the level of violence in this film? Like, did it hit you? And, you know, did you consider that a lot of it happens off screen? Or is it one of those things where you kind of go back and you're like, huh, I guess a lot of it was. Um. Yeah, so for starters, with the, with the stylized nature of a lot of things in this film, but the violence notwithstanding, um, Something we haven't even talked about is this is based on a mid-90s manga series, and I thought that maybe that had something to do with it, that maybe some of that was in the source material, just in how the art sure. was portrayed. It had a very manga-slash-anime um, feel to it, even though it was bleach-bypassed and kind of, like, desaturated and stuff like that. Uh, the 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 way that he was portraying some of this action and stuff, um, even down to the hammer with the dot-dot-dot down to the head, like, some of that stuff did kind of feel very anime uh, or manga to me, but um, I never really considered, uh, I felt like they were doling out the violence, just kind of parsing it out, but it never really hit me that a lot of it was happening off screen. I mean, obviously the elevator that you're talking about is following a three minute long wonder of nothing but violence. And then right before that, we saw some graphic portrayal of this guy's getting his teeth removed. 
Um, well, but that's exactly what I'm that. talking about. So, like, if you actually think about that teeth scene, for example, you never actually see the teeth being removed from his mouth. What you right. see is you see him taped down to the chair with his mouth open and yelling sure. and being very scared. And then you yep. see Daisu approach with the hammer. And then, you know, we cut away as we hear the teeth being removed. And then we see the bloody tooth being dropped onto a table or by a keyboard or something. And uh, so at uh, no and point joining do we a few ever, others. Yeah. Yeah. And at no point do we ever actually see the teeth being removed from the mouth. Okay. And yet it feels as though we are. It carries the same impact. Right, right. Here's a cinematic confession. I was looking away. Uh, so, <laughs> I, you know, the whole, you know, finger split, uh, covering my face with the finger split, looking through the split fingers in my hand. Yeah. yeah I, that's great. I couldn't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, even if you look at, at, at just a scene that's about to happen here quite shortly when the captor ends up stabbing his best friend in the internet cafe. And again, like we don't actually ever see any of that happen. Like we see the aggressive nature that he's stabbing him with, but like he's not showing us the puncture wounds. He's not showing us a gory aftermath. Like we see the captor's action as he's doing the stabbing and then he almost throws the guy off screen and we see like a blood splatter against a computer screen. No, you're right. I hadn't yeah. even thought about all of that. Uh, you know, the, the the finale of this film, we'll talk about that, but like the henchman guy, the, the yeah, number with two. Yeah, the tongue, too. Um, you don't actually see that. Stabbed with like the screwdriver in the head, and then like we don't see that. And then like yep. they get in this big tussle, and all of a sudden he stands up and blood drips out his ear. We realize what, you know, happened to him. A lot of this stuff is very suggestive, and they leave it up to your imagination, which maybe the only thing I could think of is just maybe that, like there's so much graphic like he's asking a lot of you as the viewer like you're going on a pretty dark ride and oh, for sure you and i spoke right after i like right after i've finished watching this like the credits world and i hit end and i called you and i was pretty upset like i was disturbed or unsettled by this film um sure. so maybe he just knew what he was asking of his viewer and like to make it even more graphic <laughs> absolutely uh, violent that would have just been too much. Maybe there was even a, a a version of the film that had some of that stuff in it. And he's like, "No, this isn't what I'm going for. I'm, ta- I'm you know, I'm trying to tell this, you know, really dramatic noir film, not um, this hyper violent action movie. You know, so maybe he it just wasn't the the vision that he had for the for the film that he wanted to make. I don't know. That's a good yeah, question. No, absolutely. Yeah, I'm always I'm always very interested when. Filmmakers can elicit those types of emotions and then, you know, you take a step back, you look and it's like, wow, he actually didn't show me any of that at all. Like he showed me just enough to make me feel as though I did and I as the viewer didn't even recognize it at the time. Like that's a magician pulling off a trick, right? Like that's what we talk about smoke and mirrors and filmmaking, you know? Yeah. And that can happen with story and editing and so many other aspects instead of just special effects as well as we see here. No, definitely. Uh, and honestly, it worked because I didn't even think about it until right this very minute. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now, when we get back to the film, Daisu does collapse in the street after these fights. He's picked up by a man who immediately puts him into a taxi and then makes a point to show his face and reveal himself as his captor, Lee Wu Jin, played by Yu Ji Tai, I believe is how it's pronounced. Apologies if I butchered that again. Great controlled performance by this guy. They were actually a little bit worried initially, or the actor uh, Ji Tai was, that 
because there's actually a very large age discrepancy between the two of them. They're supposed to have gone to high school together, but there's like a 20 year age gap. And you don't really think of it in the course of the film just with the way that they do play. But again, if you do take a step back and you picture their faces in your head, you're like, oh, yeah, Daisu is so much older than his captor. You know, they would have not gone, you know, been in the same class or whatever. But either way, again, I think we can overlook that because of the strength of this performance. And we see that Daisu wakes up next to Mido. He finds his old friend soon thereafter working at the Internet Cafe, after which point they hunt for clues. And he learns that the captor is actually staying right next door to Mido. So he runs over, confronts him, wants to kill him. But Lee, the captor, convinces him that if he does so, he's never going to learn the truth about why all this happened. Because all of this is obviously a very elaborate setup by this man. He has his reasons. And he knows that Daisu can't go to his grave without understanding why 15 years of his life, 15 very good years, were robbed from him. Now, I do want to just point out again that this scene and the one that follows do a great job of existing to reinforce this whole theme of the Captor Lee being one step ahead of Daisu at all times, right? Every time that Daisu thinks he's found him. He only found him because Lee, his captor, wanted him to find him and likely set up some breadcrumb to get him to do exactly the thing that he is doing. Serious breadcrumbing going on, yes. Right, yeah. (laughs) And one of the things that Chanuk does that's really strong that I think is in this scene, there's a little thing that he does. And when Daisu first comes into the room, he looks at Lee and... Uh, Lee says, who are you? And the director manipulated the dialogue. He had the sound engineer manipulate the dialogue so that it sounded like muffled and echoed as if it was coming from his own head. And so the idea is that Lee, his captor, is actually speaking his own thoughts to him because he knows exactly what he's thinking because he's just the ultimate puppet master the entire time. Nothing Daisu does is anything he didn't want him to do. And we also get a reinforcement of this in the following scene, which took me a second to fully realize. I didn't really understand this is what the scene was communicating. But there's a scene where the prison guard who had his teeth removed, he he gets his revenge. So the gang finds Daisu. They capture him. The leader of the gang, the prison owner, is going to exact his revenge. And then right at the last minute when the hammer is about to do its work, he gets a call. And then someone shows up and presents him with a giant briefcase of money. And then he says, okay, guys, let's go. And then at first I was like, what the hell is that? Did you you have any question about that scene or did it make sense to you? About when uh, old boy was about when Odesu was in the chair and he was about to get his shit rocked. Yeah. And like, right. Uh, um, Because he was missing his hand at that point. And then like something to do with, oh, I traded this, right? Well, okay, so 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 that the hand thing comes later, and yeah, I still think that like I I listened to what he said about that. I think that one's kind of unmotivated, but no. So this is where basically the 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 guy who's had all his teeth removed is just about to exact his revenge on Daisu, and then gets a call and gets a briefcase of money, and then everyone walks away. And so what I realized is that the prison guard, the guy who runs the the all the cells, like that's his operation, right? He doesn't work 
with Lee, the captor. Lee no, no, he was hired his by services, him. right? Yeah. So when old boy Daisu goes and kicks his entire gang's ass and removes his teeth, he needs retribution, right? This dude's a gang leader. He's like some sort of mob of boss. Course. He's not just going to take that. So he's going to go get his revenge. But when it comes down to it, our boy Lee is so on top of it, Mr. Wu Jin, that he observes this happening and makes a call, says, hey, they're about to fuck with my plan and my boy, who I have been deliberately breadcrumbing this entire time. They're about to fuck with him. Go pay them off to go away so that I can continue doing my thing. So once sure. again, it's showing that Lee is one step ahead of the situation, even when a third party comes in unexpectedly. And potentially interrupts his plan in a way that he didn't foresee. He's able to adapt, pay him off, keep things going. So was this because this all kind of like bled together for me. But was this this is the same scene when old girl was tied to the wall, right? Correct. With her yes. dress split open and then yep. uh, Odaisu was trying to save her and then gets his ass kicked. Right. right. OK. Um, so the scene right before this, when he goes to meet Lee up in the room and they have their little face to face and the. Uh, apartment right across the street uh, across the alley more or less where the windows could see each other um his parting words were you know uh, well as long as you're leaving you did leave your door unlocked and you left your girl all alone you shouldn't do that so lead knew like even as odesu was leaving that room yeah um that that was going awry um so like, he was that on top of it. It wasn't like he realized after the fact, like, oh, shit, run a bag of money over. We need to Correct, you know, stop yeah. this. They're fucking with my dog. Like, he was like, this is chess and checkers, like, even next level. Because even while he was con- being confronted in his little setup apartment thing there across the alley, he knew even then that she was going to be accosted and then he couldn't save them and the gang was moving in um, right there. And yet he still had the patience to wait, let all that play out. Knowing, like, I'll just throw money at that problem and make it go away. I, this is yeah. what's important, this eye-to-eye right now, this confrontation, because I need to let him know. Yep. Always thinking two steps ahead to use chess parlance. And now, a quick word from our sponsor. Thanks for calling Cold Dishes Revengeatorium. This is Michael speaking. How can I help you? Hi. Um, I'm Bill. And, well... Uh, I've been getting bullied. Oh, Bill, I'm sorry to hear that. I just have a few basic questions we like to start with. Uh, where is this bullying taking place now? In my home. Okay, so it's a domestic... It's my cat, Mr. Mittens. Mr. Mittens, you say? I see. We've dealt with feline abusers before. Can you tell me a little bit about what you're enduring so I can see what retribution package to recommend? Well, after I've fed him, he just he gets really aggressive and he comes to eat my dinner. And I let him take it, but then he just sneaks away, and he throws it up on my pillow a few minutes later. Ah, the old mewin spew. We've unfortunately seen cases like this quite often. Maybe we should start out with our ninth life package. One of our trained retributionists will come into your home shortly after your cat's mealtime and join you for dinner. They will project dominance with each bite they take, staring at your cat and saying things like, Mmm, this is so good. Don't you wish you had some Mr. Mittens? Mmm, and things like that, you know. Uh, really rubbing it in. Oh, man. Oh, jeez. Uh, yeah, no, you guys are good at this. Um, We take our positions seriously, yes. Uh, would you like to move forward with that, Bill? Well, 
I'm not sure that's quite what I was looking for. Of course, right. Uh, well, we certainly have other packages. Maybe you could tell me a little bit more about Mr. Mitten's treachery so we could recommend the proper treatment. So I came home from work the other day, and he was just sitting there, like staring at me. We sit there in this awkward silence, and out of nowhere, he jumps up and knocks my TV onto the ground. I can definitely see we're going to have to escalate this. Perhaps we step up to our Meowie Christmas package. It's a longer-term solution where we engage with the V-Line, dressing them up in the cutest possible holiday-appropriate outfits, and then posting videos of them on their very own TikTok account. Hmm, that actually might work. There's just... So it actually gets worse? It gets worse. Yeah, I, I, I know this is hard to believe, but recently, he's actually learned to hold a small knife in his right paw? A small knife, you say? I know I must sound crazy, but I swear, it's like he's smiling at me. It's like he's possessed. possessed by the devil himself, staring into your soul, awaiting the end times that he may rise again to roam the earth as its master. Yes, we see this quite a bit, I'm afraid. The old feline upside down nine times three. Oh, yeah, like six, six, okay. Now you've got it. I know this sounds harsh, Bill, but I assure you, in cases like this, it can be absolutely necessary. Uh, one of our elite staff will come into your home, subdue the beast, and bathe it in the sink with a little spray of thingy. Oh, God. Oh, no. It's Mr. Mittens. He, he heard us talking. Bill, Bill, are you okay? I don't know how, but he, he understands what I'm doing. Bill, stay on the line with me. I'm sending someone right away. Get your sink ready. He's standing upright. Like a, like a person. He's got the knife and, oh my god. Oh my god, he's got abs. How does a cat have abs? Bill, are you there, Bill? Oh god. Oh, we've lost him. This job just never gets any easier. Thank you for calling Cold Dishes Revengeatorium. This is Michael speaking. How can I help you? Uh, yeah. I'm calling about my cat. And now, back to the show. Now, when Di returns home with Mito, we do get the scene where, in the car, she sings the song, right? The song that triggers that she's ready. But as she does so, she's crying, as though it's against her will, almost. And once again, this is supposed to feel strange. It's an indication that something is going on that we're going to learn later on in the film is actually uh, her and, as well as Daisu, being hypnotized, and that all of these weird moments are actually triggers beyond their control. And so when something seems like it doesn't make sense, it's not supposed to. The characters are going against their natural inclinations, again, because they're being manipulated by this outside sure. force that's always one step ahead of them. And well, so, and she even teased that up in that first awkward sequence when uh, Odesu tries to sexually assault her in the bathroom uh, that we yeah. spoke about. Um, when she says, it's, you know, I'm just not feeling it now, but when I'm, I'm feeling it, I'm going to sing this song. And then she goes on to say, even if I protest and say, Correct. no, I need you to give it to me anyways. And it's yep. just like... And she does some comical hand gesture, like, boom, give it to me, or something like that, you know, in a kind of disarming, funny way. And so, though, at that time, and that's all I was saying earlier, is like, in that yeah. moment, as you're watching this live, like, they do explain it later and, and motivate it, but in that moment, it's very awkward, but... um but yeah, here we go. And so this is what it was motivating. So carry on. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So we do kind of get the sense that something isn't right. But regardless, they do have the pivotal act where the two of them, Mito and Daisu, do have sex. And immediately after, they are gassed 
and we see that Lee is watching them through a gas mask. This what can we assume is a, a grand smile underneath there. And there's actually a really great creepy visual where he's laying on the bed next to them and he's sort of caressing Mito with his one finger. It's it's not pleasant, but it's super creepy and it's super effective at being a creepy shot and a creepy sequence, especially with the two of them being as vulnerable as they are, being naked as they are. So, sure. And that's another that brings up another aspect of this film that I was really enamored with is this incredible attention to detail with regards to the production design, both just being stylistic and, you know, for lack of a better word, looking cool, right? And being visually interesting and something that you just want to watch visually unfold before you, as well as how motivated all of these visual decisions ultimately are by the storytelling and the characters. So Before I give my take on this, is there any sort of like research you did about that or anything you were re- able to recognize about sort of how they approached wardrobe, costume, production design, any of that? Um, I know this is a really mundane thing, but uh, I did um, hear the director talk about uh, and the production designer talking about um, the look of the hotel room or the the jail cell, if you will, uh, and how that changed yeah. between Odesu's and the one that uh, Mito was being kept in later in the film. So, uh, like the wallpaper that they chose had like really, yeah. um, mind numbing designs on it and mundane designs on it for Odesu, but then like more lively explodey looking ones for Mito's later in the film and stuff like that. So yeah, a lot of thought was given to that. What do you got? Yeah, no, exactly. And just to clarify specifically, so for Daisu, what they did is they used a variation of a honeycomb pattern like you would see in a bee's nest. And there's actually That's been psychological was, yeah. yeah, there's been psychological studies like the shining carpet. <laughs> correct. Yeah. That show that a honeycomb pattern makes people feel anxious. And so sure. they employed the honeycomb pattern for Daisu's hotel room, so to speak, his cell. Uh, to, to, again, make it feel anxious. And they even, like, went so far as to make sort of, like, exaggerated. They, like, sort of repainted the honeycomb to make it feel larger and more imposing. And then with Midu, they wanted to have that be more of a, a hopeful, you know, she represents good. And so they used snowflake patterns, which have actually been shown to be rather calming. That's what it was, snowflakes. Yeah. Right, right. And yeah. then for the colors, they employed red and gold, which are the colors of the sun. Obvious metaphor okay. right there. Now, yeah. the other thing they did is with uh, Wu Jin, our captor Lee, his apartment, they went very minimalist with regard to the design that we see, you know, the entire third yes. act take place in. And it's got very – it's almost entirely concrete, very gray, and this is supposed to reflect the bleakness of his mind, right, in contrast to, say, the bright color of a Mido character or the anxiety-ridden patterns of our Daisu character. And one of the other aspects that they paid particular attention to, which again, you know, it seems obvious, but you never really think about it until it's pointed out, is they spent a lot of time on the hairstyle. You know, when you picture him, especially in that opening shot, right, and he's got that sort of wild hair that kind of juts out everywhere and it's kind of fuzzy, so to speak. That's the hair of a frenetic man, right? That's not like a businessman. We see Lu, uh, Li Wu Jin, rather. He's got his hair all slicked back, right? It's very close. It's very sharp. It's very trim. 
Odai Su has this very wild hair that kind of goes all over the place. So all they wanted over him, the place. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they wanted him to be a very sort of like wild person, you know, almost like a caveman who's coming out of his cave, you know, after these 15 yes. years. Feral. Um, so he's got these, yeah, feral, great word for it, right? And so his hair reflects that. And they went through a lot of different hairstyles until they ultimately settled on that. And again, taking a step back, that is a very distinctive part of his character that I didn't really appreciate until it was pointed out, you know? I'll give you one uh, one more that maybe you saw, maybe you didn't. But in an interview with uh, Park Chan-wook, he said this is a hand movie. Um, he was asked uh, by an Asian reporter, what, what was the fucking deal with all the close-ups of hands? And he said it was the hand uh, that motivated Lee to drop his sister. We're going to get to that here very shortly. I'm not spoiling uh, anything. Ah, yes. Yeah. And so um, it was the hand that released his sister. It was the hand that uh, Odesu was holding on to. Uh, the suicide man with, um, but there's a lot of close-ups of hands. And he said, it all goes back to the hand was the culprit that let his sister go. Um, that is really the antagonist of the film. And so I wanted to make sure there's a trail of hands throughout or an attention to detail to hands, but throughout the movie. So as you go watch this, there's tons of close-ups of hands uh, throughout this movie. And I guess the movie prior to this, Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance, he says is a foot movie. And he said, which I have not seen, but he references that as like, there's a lot of close-ups to feet. And he said, it's not a, a fetish. It's not a sexual thing. It's just that uh, I like to you know focus on certain things that I feel are characters all their own within the context of the film. I thought that was funny. That is funny. And hey, look, don't go telling Quentin Tarantino that, right? Now I understand exactly why he brought old boy over to the States. There you go. <laughs> He's like, thanks for all the wanking material and Mr. Vengeance. Appreciate it. Give me those hands and feet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, the only other sort of production note I have here that was brought up is just the way in which he uses the patterns. So specifically, for example, all of the clues, the breadcrumbs, if you will, most of them that Lee formally presents to Daisu are in the form of gifts and the gifts are always wrapped in purple and they have this sort of almost spider web splintered glass sort of aesthetic to them and that's actually what it's supposed to reflect is both of those things separately. So on the one hand, it does resemble kind of a spider's web. That's a metaphor you've heard a thousand times. I don't have to explain. The other is that it reflects the shattered glass of say a broken mirror which is obviously foreshadowing the the third act reveal that we'll get to here in a moment with his sister. So they made sure to employ those all throughout. And again, going back to that observation that I made at the top of the show, you know, this is what elevates the film from being a, just a genre film to something more closely resembling an art piece, you know? Now, the character discovers Lee's picture at Evergreen High School. There's a sequence where Dai's friend is at an internet cafe and after having identified this man, Lee, they're talking about his sister. Her name is Lee Sue and how she is this very promiscuous character. She's a spoiled rich brat who does nothing but sleep around and just talks very disparagingly of her. At first, we're getting sort of like a, a split screen almost of this man. I forget his name, but he's Odai Sue's friend uh, that picked him up in the very first scene as well as our captor, Lee. And we're not exactly certain if they're in the same room, but it turns out that they are. They're both in this internet cafe. And again, in a very interesting decision that I don't think would actually work in real life, but it's a genre picture, so we can uh, let them get away with it. And who knows, maybe this was in the manga as well. But Daisu 
grabs a CD, or not a Daisu, Li Wu Jin grabs a CD out of the internet cafe computer, breaks it in half, walks around to where the friend is talking disparagingly of his sister, and then just proceeds to stab the hell out of him with half of a CD. I, what I know of CDs, I'm pretty sure it would break and splinter and barely pierce skin. However, it is a violent scene, and again, I'm willing to, you know, I've suspended some reality throughout the course of this film, so we can go ahead and suspend some more. But it I is think still you could probably break skin scene. with a sharpened CD. You think? I think so, yeah. yeah. All right, well, I can't say I'm going to put it to a <laughs> test, so let's just take your word for it, as well as uh, Chanuk's here. Fair. Now, after getting on the phone with Odai Su, who was talking to his friend... And basically telling him that, hey, you know what? Like, this guy's full of shit. My sister wasn't a whore. You don't know what you're talking about. Stop talking about her, this and that. We get a brief scene where Daisu visits a hairstylist who was supposedly friends with her or friend with a friend of hers when they were younger and in high school. And this is where we actually get the final reveal of the why with regards to why Odaisu was captured for all of these 15 years. It's told through flashback. We return to Evergreen High School and we see a young Daisu in high school. He's generally just being an oaf and an ass and he's smoking and he's skipping class and he's hanging upside down and getting slapped by the school teachers for not taking shit seriously. And immediately after that, we get a scene where our current, you know, old Daisu, let's call him uh, in our present day reality, is sort of chasing his younger self through the halls and alleys of this high school. One little interesting note is that this scene in particular was inspired by a sequence from a Brian De Palma film called Dressed to Kill, which I have not seen. But if you have seen Dressed to Kill and you can think of – apparently there's a scene that takes place of someone being – someone chasing – it's not surreal like this. I think it's someone chasing something else through halls. But that's what inspired this sequence. Got it. Daisu arrives at the library and he's watching a younger Lee, his captor, who's taking photos with his sister. And this very quickly becomes inappropriate and sexual. And we see that he's touching her and grabbing at her clothes. And she's very half-heartedly resisting as though almost like she's more playing hard to get in a way than she is actually saying no. Which is reinforced by the fact that she quickly moves to help him take off her underwear as he is grabbing and kissing her breasts. Once again, this is his sister that he is performing uh, all of these actions to. And she ends up pulling out, you know, why she, why he's kissing her body and such. She pulls out a mirror, a little hand mirror, and is watching herself through it, you know, whatever's going through her mind at the time. And as she sort of moves the mirror around to get different angles and, 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 you know, we think that she's thinking about how beautiful she looks. We see that she catches the reflection of Odaisu in the window who has been watching this entire time through a sort of like a shattered bullet hole almost. She gasps. She drops the mirror. It breaks. That's what the illusions of the production design with the purple gifts are an illusion to that broken mirror. And we see that immediately after Dai returns and tells some sort of schoolyard chum what he saw and 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 that ultimately leads to what it leads to where you know eventually the kids that was his homie from the internet cafe rumor. right i oh was it is that who it was supposed to be that would that's why i, I was yeah, yeah, really sure who it was yeah because then what when he was at the salon right before that 
and the salon lady said, you should go talk to your homie. Like, he's the one that told me. So then gotcha. that's when he puts okay. it all together. Because he's like, oh, fuck. I told him. Like, that doesn't and then he goes sense, on yeah. this little reminiscent tour. And then he's like, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I did a thing. And uh, that, that said a thing. So, yeah. Yeah, so you know, uh, we're gonna learn the the exact details of uh, you know that exact relationship and what happened from it here in just a second at the third act. But what I did want to talk to you about is very a very simple question with perhaps not a simple answer, or maybe you have one. Do you think that Daisu ultimately deserved the treatment that he did for the action that he undertook, and then from there? Do you think the film agrees with you or not? Oof. <laughs> um, yeah, we'll be right back after this commercial break. No, uh, <laughs> yeah, this is uh, settle in, everybody. Put in disc two uh, for the continuation of this question. This is we'll be right back uh, no. after these words from our sponsors. Right. I don't know. Do I think that anyone deserves to be locked up for 15 years and bang their daughter over a childhood gossip sesh? No, I do not think that. <laughs> I think that's a little extreme. Um, you know, he should have been banging his sister in the first place. Maybe things would have turned out all right. Question mark, right? shrug. Yeah. <laughs> he got called out on the shit he was doing and... Yeah, kids gossip. That's what they do. Like, I, you know, uh, some shit yeah, was said exactly. about me when I was a kid. I'm sure I said shit about other people when I was a kid. Uh, yeah, and, kids and, are brutal. And while not, uh, while not an enjoyable subject matter, it certainly is noteworthy. I think we could all agree. Right. Right. <laughs> right. If I saw, you know, little Jimmy banging his sister in high school, yeah, I'm going to go tell my best friend and be like, yeah. dude, you'll never believe what I just saw. That's dude, what you I, do. <laughs> I told him about the marble that I found in the sewer the other day. Of course I'm going to tell him about that. <laughs> right. I'm a right. kid. So, yeah. So, and then especially at that age when like, you know, sexualization and boobs and ch I mean, you're hiding porns in the woods and stuff like, yeah, of course you're going to talk about some sex you just saw. And if it's two siblings, that's bananas. You can't wait yeah. to tell somebody and you're off the next, like you're off to, he was transferred to Seoul, uh, another school altogether. It was like his last day there anyway. So what the hell does he, you know, light Correct. the match, throw it over your shoulder, walk off like a hero. So <laughs> no, I don't think that he deserved all that. I I think the film isn't about is this shit deserved or not. I think it's more about um maybe and I'm guessing here. I'm you put me on the spot so I'm going to give you my yeah, answer no, of course. in a succinct yeah, that's way. That's what we're here for. But, if I want to know someone yeah. else's answer, I'll ask them. I want to know what you think. Fair. I think that the film does a tremendous job of asking the viewer to think about the ripples that happen when you throw a rock in the pond. So, sure. so often when you're younger, you're just throwing rocks in ponds. Boom, boom. I'm making <laughs> shit happen, baby. I'm doing these things. Some of them are great. Some of them aren't. But you're trying stuff and you're, you know, acting out. You're getting wasted. And Odesu, they showcase up until the moment he's captured is acting erratically, missing his daughter's birthday because he's drunk, acting out in a police station. Um, this is a man who never really was was asked to check himself um, before he, in fact, did wreck himself. Sure. So I think the the movie, taking a conversation full circle, is just um, holding a mirror up to uh, our pasts and asking us to think about, like, yeah, you 
have done these things to people. Some of them may even be deservant. Uh, you know, like, sure, dude was banging his sister, um, having some incest sex. Uh, no good. No good at all. But, um, you know, this shows the repercussions of that because he threw the rock in the pond, went off to Seoul High School, graduated, went about his life, kept on throwing rocks. And meanwhile, uh, Lee had to go live with this. And then the daughter, or his sister rather, um, you know, was pregnant. Some of that stuff kind of was obscure, by the way. Some of the details in the very end, because it was all very yeah. exposition dumpy. Um, if I'm not mistaken, she was pregnant, and the shame of it all, paired with the gossip and rumors, caused her to commit suicide. And he yeah. tried to save her, but in the end, he knew that the burden was too much for either of them to bear, so he let go and let her do it. Correct. Um, yeah. So... Uh, because the shame of her having this kid and stuff like that. And then he blamed, he, but he never blamed himself as the villain. He only took on um, Odesu as the villain. Like it was his doing. He said that his gossip and his tongue, uh, loose tongue, even got her pregnant. Is that yeah. correct? That's where I got it confused. Is, yeah. And that's, and that's showing his delusion. So this is another very interesting decision. Uh, that Chan Uk is making with regards to this is being filtered through this particular character's psychology, or in this case, okay, path- pathology, it. right? Yeah. So, yeah, the details are shady because he doesn't take responsibility for his actions. You know, he's warped these things to absolve himself of responsibility for this thing that he probably couldn't live with. It was probably almost an act of self defense because he did love her. You know, that's the one thing that really does come through is for as gross as the idea of a sexual incest relationship can be. This character did love his sister in addition to having a sexual relationship with her. We see that in how difficult it is for him to ultimately let go. But again, that ultimately we hold that against the character, right? Because at the end of the day, even if it was an incestuous relationship, you still have to acknowledge that he was willing to let the love of his life die rather than face the shame that would come with admitting that he did in fact love this person, right? Right. So there is that aspect of it, and he carries that with him. And so he has to rationalize that and you know make himself be the victim because otherwise he really did do that. And again, he wouldn't be able to live with himself if he did that. And this was another split with, by the way, with the Spike Lee joint, because Spike Lee, Spike Lee's version proposed that there was a dad involved that was having incestual sex with like the whole fam damly. And Josh Brolin's Odesu style character um, went on to throw the lid off of that operation to where the dad went on a murder spree, not being able to bear the shame of this whole sitch and murdered everyone in his family. Uh, the son got away and ended up surviving and then blamed Josh Brolin for the whole bit. Got um, it. And uh, it's alleged that the son was in love with the father um, because he loved that sweet, sweet incest butt stuff. So it was just very, very, cause like my, this is what I was waiting for. Right. I'm like, is Spike Lee going to do the thing? Is he going to show in Westernized <laughs> culture incest yeah. on screen? Or did he find a little workaround? And 
So I was waiting for that to be like, no, like you could do that in Asian culture or whatever. You know, South Korea is different, uh, but Westernized, we're going to figure out another motivation, something sick for this guy. No, sure. like Spike Lee apparently like quadrupled down and he was like, no, we're not only having the incest, but it was the dad and he was banging everybody. And then he killed himself and then the son loved it and then wanted to go get revenge because he misses his dad lover. So I was like, oh, wow. wow, that's a choice. <laughs> <laughs> Okie doke. And we're going to Charlton Copley do it all? Like, Okie doke. Let's fucking see how this goes. <laughs> that's Answered crazy. not very well, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so I will just say that as far as for my own opinions, I do agree with you. I don't think that Daisu deserved this at all, to be 100% clear. I think this is, again, one of those cases where it's, you know, any sort of spoiled rich person that doesn't own up to their own responsibility. And again, that's not just, you know, strictly relegated to powerful rich people, right? Like people across the entire socioeconomic spectrum exist within this space. But in this film, he's supposed to be a spoiled rich kid. That's actually even reinforced. That's the reason that they actually, you know how they have that shower that's just in the middle of his apartment. And then he has that like, you know, uh, sort of like, closet that opens like the box from Hellraiser a little bit in this sort of like modular sort of way. This is supposed to be a reflection that he's like a rich kid with fancy toys who just likes playing with expensive toys for no right. other reason than he can have them and he likes it, you know? So I think it's supposed to be a reflection of that type of person who again would not take responsibility for their role in something going wrong. It's going to be society's fault. It's going to be my mom's fault. It's going to be whoever's fault. Right. But Anybody but my fault, right? Almost like an addict, right? Drug addict, a domestic abuser, any of these people that continue with these behaviors and point to right. the dealer or their victim or whomsoever to absolve themselves of the shame of their behavior, right? And so I think this plays into that whole concept. I agree. Now, when we landed our considerably lengthy third act, well, let me just actually point off one real quick, though. I will say I do think the film – I do think the film has a little bit of like, yeah, but energy when it comes to that, right? Like, it's like, oh, I don't think Daisu, Daisu deserved that. And the film's like, well, yeah, but also, you know, he did kind of do this thing where he kind of threw this information out there. And maybe if he didn't, this would have happened. And I do feel like the film has a little bit of that energy where we're not necessarily supposed to feel that Daisu is – 100% the victim. I also don't know if perhaps this is a reflection of Korean culture, like, right, maybe like, you know, gossip or speaking of other people's personal affairs is considered a much more egregious offense than perhaps it is in westernized culture. And that plays into that, right? Because I, again, I do feel like the film has a little bit of that energy where I would say like, no, dude, this guy doesn't deserve any of that. Stop banging your sister and nothing's wrong, right? Like, own up to well, your shit. That's an American point of view. Like, it's again, like you're the one who did the thing. Own up to it and, you know, either do it or don't. But regardless, this is your decision. Own up to it. I just think that, you know, I, I think that it's an interesting proposal that the that the film makes to ask the, the viewer to realize that um, the actions of children can be impactful. And trauma can be the seeds of trauma can be planted early. Sure. So though That's this fair. was a fucked up situation, um, 
Odesu's actions through gasoline on an otherwise raging fire and made it worse and so and was able to walk away scot-free without any repercussions and he left uh lee and his uh sister holding the bag on the whole thing you know and they had to sort that all out to the point of his sister's death uh right in front of him so and that was uh, a seed of trauma that he has carried with him that is grown into an oak tree and now he is come back with the reckoning um to uh, find vengeance for this over 15 years you know and then uh yeah i mean and that's what makes this a part of the vengeance trilogy right and again going to taking yeah. this conversation an episode full circle you walk into this film thinking it's Odesu's vengeance and it's really sure. lease when it all comes down to it. And yep. is it justified? Is it right? Is it wrong? Is anything in this film right or wrong? I think that, you know, that's what I love about foreign cinema does this so well. And Asian cinema above all else, I think is, you know, I think Westernized cinema is so hung up on having a protagonist and an antagonist and clear lines between good and bad and good and evil. Um, but I think that life is more complicated than that. I think that one minute you can be the good guy and one minute you can be the bad guy in completely different scenarios. I've been the bad guy before and I've been the good guy before um, in my own life and sometimes, you know, within a day or two of each other. So uh, I think life is more complicated than, oh, he's Captain America or, oh, he's Thanos, you know, and they're good and bad, whatever. Uh, I think that Odesu did a very terrible thing or left a very terrible wake in a, uh, in his path um, that caused serious trauma to Lee and his sister to the point of his sister's death. And this is the reckoning for that, uh, that has come to find him after all this time. But um, it, did he, but, but, it, but it's also a, it was a, the actions of a child. So how can you hold them accountable? Because we've all done stupid shit as a kid. So it's a, it's yeah. a very complex situation. This is a complex movie. It's a moral quandary. And, I'll, uh, you know, kind of buttoning the whole thing up and, and, and moving on. Lee didn't care. Lee had a dead sister. Lee had lifetimes of trauma that drove him crazy and shattered his psyche. And he was just coming to make amends with that before he joined his sister, which we're about to get to. So anyway, that's my take on it. Absolutely. Yeah. And that brings us to basically our third act. And it's a considerably lengthy third act that takes a while to get through. Dai Su finds the penthouse where our captor Lee is, but he doesn't know the elevator code. He's punching in a bunch of numbers. All of a sudden the alarm goes off and who strolls in, but Mr. Lee himself. And he sort of smiles as he punches in the code and brings his assistant, Mr. Han, as well as Odaisu up and into his apartment for our final showdown between our protagonist and our antagonist. So again, in typical showdown fashion, as the doors open and he walks in, he's immediately attacked by guards, we see him stab them in the eyes and neck with a toothbrush. This guy is nothing if not scrappy. And we have his final, <laughs> uh, his final showdown here. Now, a couple interesting notes that are peppered throughout. So one of the th first things that the captor Lee does is he showers. And one of the things that Chan Uk hoped to communicate through this is that, like, Lee has no regard for Daisu whatsoever He's just another plaything for him, right? He, he is a means of entertainment for him and nothing else. So he is going to treat him like an inanimate object, like furniture or like a plastic toy. And so by showering and being naked and dressing in front of him, he's basically showing him like, I am not even considering you as a person right now. You don't bother me one iota. I own you, right? A lot of little sort of 
flourishes and touches that uh, come through in this. I've already spoken to the fact that he has this sort of origami closet showing that he's, you know, a rich kid who likes to play with fancy toys. And that's when Daisu directly accuses Lee of sleeping with his sister. Yeah. And Lee does his twisted Bond villain explanation that, oh, she didn't kill herself. You know, Daisu's rumor did. And I didn't get her pregnant. She believed in the rumor so hard that she ended up getting pregnant of her own volition. Right. And again, he's just completely delusional about his role. But I think that the interesting thing is I think the delusion is a self-defense mechanism, again, because of the fact that he ultimately did make the decision to kill his sister, the love of his life, and he has to find a way to be able to resolve that and keep moving forward. And this is how he does that. And we also get, as we've alluded to, several times over the course that, you know, they've been hypnotized this entire time. And so all of these suggestions where Mido is, you know, reluctantly crying as she sings the song and being super weird after she's physically attacked. And the fact that even Odaisu himself is so attracted to her. But the hypnotic suggestions that he gave them were so hyper-specific that that's what Takata took me out of it. Cause he's like, so I hypnotized you to when I called you the the song on the phone, the ringtone on the phone would make you say a certain phrase and yeah. that would trigger that. And then the phrase that you say uh, will trigger Mito, who's now cu- cutting your sushi, to you know go back home. And then this would happen and then that would happen. It was like so much like back and forth hypnotism. And yeah. then he's like, then I snuck in again and gassed you guys in your own bed and I hypnotized you some more and like made you do some <laughs> other shit. It's like he would like the whole thing was so hypnosis based in how the whole house of cards was structured if i had only one complaint to make about this film it's that i was just like man so the whole explanation was just hypnosis i don't think that's how hypnosis works (laughs) (laughs) yes but and then we get you know we do get our formal final reveal where poor daisu is finally made aware of this grand reveal where the purple spiderweb broken mirror box is sitting there on the table and daisu opens it finds the photo album that shows the growth of Mido from a very young baby sitting with her father and mother happily into the beautiful young woman that she has become by the time the film has started. And that, yes, in fact, uh, this woman that he had sex with was his daughter. And that is the ultimate punishment. And also, again, sort of reinforces this sort of incest theme of like, yeah, this 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 brought me down, and so I'm going to make you do the same thing so that it brings you down as well. Now, before we sort of wrap up here, Ryan, I did want to give you the opportunity to sort of speak to the music in this film because I know you said at the top of the episode that uh, you had a very strong response to the music in this film. I did, yes. <laughs> Tell us about that. I mean, that. that's it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I kind of did already talk about it. It's It's very waltzy. It's very melodic. It's very operatic. Um, it made me think of, you know, uh, tragedy and, you know, all the things it's, it can be, uh, but then there are some like, uh, little, you know, harder tones and stuff and the violent stuff. But for the most part, it's very, like I said, waltzy. It's the best word. I think that's how Char- uh, Park Chan-wook, uh, Park Chan-wook, uh, describes it is, is waltzy. That was the, what he was going for. I yeah. looked up the composer, uh, who did the score for it. Uh, looks like he's been uh, doing park stuff for a while now. So, so they're, they're both homies. very good friends. Yeah, they like go back, like way back in the day. And so, yeah, yeah. 
they they drink. Yeah, together it's like him, that, the so. DP, and the composer were all in the whole you know height of their career together doing all this shit. So, um, but other than that, most of it, like his old. Whereas the cinematographer branched out and did a lot of Western stuff, like I said, that I would be familiar with, like Last Night in Soho, for example, or Obi Wan Kenobi, or any of that. Um, the composer did just pretty much exclusively do uh, South Korean and, and Asian cinema. So some of yeah. that stuff I was familiar with, some of it I wasn't. Um, but, uh, yeah. Anyway, what do you got? No, just how, you know, I mean, I thought the score is really strong and I think that it's really effective just in the way that much like the cinematography, it's really a score of extremes and it just sort of plays that very well. You know, it's, it's aggressive. I think it's, it adds a lot of energy to the film, you know, especially when we get that sort of like, higher energy sort of pumping techno sort of songs, right? Like the one that interrupts the soft music at the very front. But then sure. they also use these very traditional operatic recordings. I want to say that Vivaldi was the composer that they selected for the okay. um, classical songs that they used. For I'll buy like, that. You know, they played over when his teeth is getting removed with the hammer and such. I believe mm. it was Vivaldi. So, and again, that's just you know a, a nature of extremes, right? Like, you know, heavy, heavy metal, e- electronic EDM, so to speak, versus you know operatic classical films. So, just again, seeking to reinforce that this is a film of extremes. And when we do get to again, you know, we've gotten our our final third act reveal. This is the true third act climax. And the most interesting thing I thought about this very last scene where. Daisu kind of just freaks out is that the power structure that Chen Uk wanted to employ for this film is that of an actor and director. And so for this final sequence, he wanted these two characters to essentially be such that Oh Daisu has to put on the audition of a lifetime. Best performance anyone has ever seen. And if he can do so effectively, he will win the reward of getting the role in the metaphor, which in this case would be Lee not revealing the photo album to Mido so that she does not know that Daisu is her father. And so everything that that takes place in these you know five to ten minutes is basically this staged act of contrition, right? He's putting on the performance of a lifetime, begging – Lee, not to tell Mito the truth, he's broken, he's crying, he's pleading, he acts like a dog, he literally licks boot, all the while Lee is laughing, right? And in the final act of contrition, he cuts out his own tongue. But once again, to our earlier point, we do not see him cut out his own tongue. We see him grab his tongue. We see him do the scissors, and then we hear it happen off screen. And we see well, you see the reaction, and then the fingers and the scissor holes come together. Correct. Yeah, 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 there's a close up of it slowly cutting, and you hear the kind of squishiness. And again, it's so effective, right? But he's still not showing it to us, which is amazing. I, I love how effective something like that can be, and so. Right. Yeah. And so but what makes this a performance is that it is just that it is a performance. If you take a step back and I believe this is true, the idea is that Daisu does not believe that he deserves this. Right. Like he still feels as if he was horribly wronged. So when he 
does all of this begging and pleading and I'm so sorry and like blah, blah, blah. It's, it's, it's not him having a come to Jesus moment. He's not really apologizing for what he did. He is trying to do his best to convince his captor of that to get the end result that he wants of not having this information revealed to his daughter. And by this final act of contrition of cutting out his tongue, our director, Mr. Lee, grants him his wish. He says, you know what? You did good, kid. You sat here, you begged, you licked boot, you cut out your tongue. This is everything that I wanted to see. You have made my life complete. boy. you got the part, right? Uh, so he makes sure. the call and says, hey, you don't need to show her the book. We're good. I got what I needed. And then, you know, he's going to walk away into the elevator and – once again, always being one step ahead of Daisu, always setting him up as though he's about to do something effective and then pulling the rug out at the last minute. Lucy pulling the football away from Charlie Brown. Uh, earlier, we, we didn't mention this, but earlier it's revealed that our captor Lee has a remote control that's attached to his pacemaker, supposedly, in the event that Daisu were to try to torture him or something, he could kill himself. Uh, so that Daisu would never learn the information about the why, keeps everything, keeps the ball in his court. So as he's walking away in this final scene, Daisu gets his hand on the remote. We think he's going to get his final revenge and kill him right before he's able to walk away. And when he does, we find out that the whole thing was a ruse. There's no pacemaker. This certainly is not the remote control. All it did is trigger the audio recording that they took of him having sex with his daughter. And it plays uh. it back to him as he sits there crying to himself on the yeah. floor, bleeding with no tongue. And right. once again, Lee went two steps, seven steps ahead the entire time with his plan finally complete and no further reason to live, no more enjoyment to get out of life because this is all he's been working for. He shoots himself in the head, takes his own life before Daisu ever has the chance to so that once again, Daisu can never have his revenge. Just fucks him the entire movie time and time again. The entire time. Right. And – Fucks you as the viewer, like, you know, because you are along for this ride thinking that you're going to get a happy ending here. This is Odesu's moment to shine. And he comes in, beats the two thugs up. You're like, all right, here we go. Then Mr. Han, the, uh, you know, uh, sidekick or whatever, the the head bodyguard yeah. uh, comes in. You're like, okay. And then they have their little fight, stabs him in the ear, fucking shanks him. Then Lee shoots him in the back of the head to finish him off okay great now he's out of the way now we got our big standoff so you get the reveal that he's been uh falling in love with his daughter um terrible so emotionally you're taking a gut punch as a viewer then um you get that whole drawn out performance which however long jason described it it's like five minutes longer than that it goes on for a long time (laughs) and then he cuts out his tongue and then you have the the audio track of like him and his daughter having sex, and then Lee shoots himself in that. So you are just as the viewer, just like, oh no, oh oh no, like it's <laughs> one gut punch after the next. Yeah. And then you know you get to uh, this final scene, and um, 
and then that the Jason's going to describe here shortly that wraps up the movie and you're just left to sit in the stew of your own filth in, on the couch of just like what the fuck did I <laughs> I felt like Odesu in that room like yeah. with his crooked smile and his hair sticking out everywhere like that's how I felt walking out of that movie Absolutely yeah the film caps off we do get a brief epilogue in some snow-capped mountains the female hypnotist is there with Daisu, obviously has no tongue, shell-shocked a little bit, tells him to look at a tree and watch, quote, the monster walk away, which is basically the old Daisu that underwent all of this. He does so, and then Mido shows up very shortly thereafter, walking through the snow, picks him up, and she lets Daisu know that she loves him, and they embrace, and we see... Odaisu's face as he first smiles and then cries. And this is basically Chanuk trying to be a little bit ambiguous with regard to the ending, which I always love a good ambiguous ending, whether you're Kubrick or this guy or anyone else, you know, leave the, leave the uh, audience with some questions that they can discuss over a drink after the movie's over. You know, I, I always appreciate that, but uh, we're, we're not quite certain if maybe it worked or not. Hopefully it did for him and he doesn't have to remember this Horrible, horrible things that happened to himself, but we don't know. And the film basically shows us this vista that the two of them are staring out at and the credits roll as the film comes to an end. And that yeah. is our experience with Old Boy. So, yeah, definitely a bit of a brutal ending. It's an experience. <laughs> you said that right. 100%. Now, before we get to our three adjectives and final star ratings, do just want to remind you that if you enjoy the program, best thing you can do is tell your friends. And the second best thing you can do is rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening to this. If you don't already, please subscribe and follow. That also helps us out and works the algorithm to our benefit. So once again, really appreciate all you guys doing that. If you haven't, please do. And we're going to go ahead and get into our three adjectives right now. But hold the phone, Ryan, because it has been forever. I know it's a bit of a longer episode, but that is not going to stop us from doing three adjectives metaphor edition on oh, this episode wow. of Esoterica Cinema. If you do not know it. what I'm talking about, every so often I bust these out on Ryan. And I decide that we're going to turn three adjectives into a little game where I'm going to give him a lengthy description of ultimately one word. So, Ryan, each of these three longer metaphors, you only need to respond with the one word that it responds to. And these are going to reflect my three adjectives for old boy. So they're all one word. They're all one word. OK. Yeah. Each, each one is one word only. Now, Oof. Ryan, if I told you. That my experience with Old Boy was a piece of Tierra Masu cake. What would you think I was referring to? Layered. Boom. My man. One for one. Good Done. answer. Good answer. Layered. Good answer. Exactly. All right. All right. <laughs> all right. Moving on to the next one. Number two. By the way, I'm not going to explain these. These are all very self-evident. We've spent two plus hours talking about this. There number we go. two. If I Let told you that my experience with Old Boy was the work of a steel bridge constructor or worker, what would that mean? The work of a steel bridge constructor. The work of a steel bridge constructor. What does a steel bridge constructor do that could also apply to this film? 
Um, well manufactured something. <laughs> I told you it was only going to be one word. I know, but... I know, I know. Right, right, right. Yeah, so yeah, manufactured. Yeah. No, no. I mean, it was, but this is a great film. No. Uh, one of the many jobs, the work of a steel bridge constructor involves riveting. Ah, okay. Riveting. Okay. Riveting. It? Riveting. They're installing you know, rivets back, in the bridge. Back, backup answer. I was going to say well done because it's he's welded. <laughs> well, he's welded. Well done. Yes. No. Welded. He's welded things I, together. Yeah, no, well I done. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and thirdly, lastly, if I told you that my experience with Old Boy was every song that infamous 90s metal band Pantera ever recorded. What would that be, Ryan? Fucking amazing. <laughs> close, close. <laughs> what's what's something that's more close, uh, closely associated with metal and horns in description of amazing metal music? How do you describe it? Hardcore? You describe that music as fucking brutal, bro. That brutal! music is brutal. Yeah. There we go. So yes. a piece of tiramisu cake layered, work of a steel bridge constructor, riveting, every song infamous 90s metal band Pantera ever recorded, brutal. This has been Three Adjectives Metaphor Edition. Ryan, what you got, buddy? Uh, Pretty much the same. I got unsettling as my first. I said it a million times throughout my discussion. My next is beautiful because... This one tugged at the heartstrings. I thought it was a beautiful film, even though it's ugly. Um, it's beautiful visually and so on. Uh, and just the character arcs and all of it. The third one is motion, both visually and audibly. I, again, have talked about this ad nauseum throughout the show, but I thought the the motion of the camera, I thought the motion of the uh, score and all of that, just the, the, the dance of it all was just wonderful. I loved it. Brilliant. Love that. So it is time for our formal ratings. If you don't know, I give star ratings out of five. Ryan gives grade ratings uh, A through F. Uh, if you don't know why, go back and listen to some old episodes. We've talked about it before. Ryan, what is your grade rating for Old Boy? Giving it an A plus, maybe. Love wow, this movie. Wow, nice. Perfect film. Wow, that is. Cannot find a single flaw. That is two A pluses in a row. And you are, back you, back. you are not an easy A pluser. I'm not, but <laughs> hey, these are these are two bangers. Uh, what yeah. can you say? Like, I would put these in the higher lexicon of my filmography that I've seen. I, I love this. 100%. Yeah. Uh, I am just, just behind you. I, I am four and three quarters stars out of five. It's like, it's like one of those films that's like just barely like scratching the surface of like my favorite really? movies, right? Like All it's right. like just, just under there a little bit. Honestly, I think... I think it's really just like because it's so incest heavy, man. And like, I don't know if that's, that's fair. fair to say or like. Don't you put that on me, Jason. Don't you put that on me. Oh, this guy gave it an A plus, though. Look at this part. <laughs> this guy perf. loves the incest. <laughs> Can't get enough of it. Fucking <laughs> <laughs> Deliverance is this dude's favorite movie. You know what I think? I think it's just because I'm not a sick fuck and I just wouldn't like break this. Is the higher like I wouldn't say something as stupid as like the higher lexicon of my filmography. (laughs) 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 Uh, Right under the bus. I was uh, that's fine. (laughs) No, no, no. But I mean, again, that's uh, that's that. uh, Yeah, that's totally. It's it's a great, wonderful movie, dude. It's it's so well made. You know, again, this is. 
a fantastic film that everyone needs to see. Except again, you know, just if that type of subject matter is maybe uncomfortable for you, you do need to know that going into it. So, yep. Yeah. Again, four and three quarter stars from Jason. Perfect A plus from Ryan. And uh, if, by the way, if you don't know what we're talking about, the previous film, it's the elephant man. Go back, check that one out. Amazing film as well. So let's go ahead and wrap things up here with a little bit of business. If you want to reach out to us, we would love to hear from you. Any different form of contact. We have the email esotericacinema at gmail.com. And you can also call the hotline. Hotline is 818-483-6285. If you call, you can tell us about your response to this film, Old Boy, one of our previous films we looked at. And then, of course, you can visit our website. Our website does have some direct messaging available on there in the bottom right and that it goes directly to us. Now, while on the website, you also have access, immediate access to our last four episodes that will play right there on the main page. You can also connect via a link to our dedicated web player that has every single episode, bonus feature, sketch, whatever it is. If we've put it out there, it's available online for you. And the other thing that you can do while you're there on the website is check out our master list. That's right, our master list of all 200 films that we put together and update at the beginning of every season and use to select the films that we will be watching. We like to throw our hands up to the gods and say, hey, what do you guys think we should watch this week? And they let us know. And for the most part, they have been pretty good to us, especially this season. We have gotten some absolute bangers this season. So, Ryan, should we go ahead and select this film and see what the next week's going to look like? Let's do it. Right on. Okay, so we're going to go ahead and, of course, go to our random.org true number generator. If you'd like to play along at home, if you're not driving and you would just like to uh, get ahead and see what's up here, go ahead and go to the website right now, esotericacinema.com. There's a PDF on the front page, and it shows all 200 films, and it's 1 through 200. We're going to go here and see what we got. So, Ryan, spinning the wheel, we are going to generate a number. That number is going to look like number 10. So, if you're on that site, go ahead and pull up number 10. I am actually not there yet. And as I come here, oh, wow, we just had nine earlier this season with Amadeus. So, that's that's pretty close there. Wow, this front page is getting a lot of love. So, okay, let's talk about what we didn't get. For number 10, we did not get number nine, Amadeus, which would have been the first time that we have pulled a duplicate. So far, we have not gotten any duplicates with our random number generator, so that's pretty cool. And we are not having number 11, Another Round, which I know is a film that both of us are really looking, really looking forward to watching one day uh, with Mads Mikkelsen about uh, some older guys who have kind of given up on life and decided to just spend the rest of it drinking. I'm sure all of us have considered that one time or another in our lowest points. No, instead we are looking at a fantastic, wonderful film that is, if I recall, it, for a long time this was one of my favorite films and I'm really looking forward to going back and seeing if this holds up. For yeah, I haven't seen this in a long time. episode number 10, we are looking at Amores Peros. That's right, Spanish language film from... I usually get his film name wrong. I want to say it's Alejandro Inarritu Gonzalez, if I have it correct. Alejandro Gonzalez Inarritu. Ah, the other way around. I always get those two mixed up. Ah. But uh, yeah, Ryan, you got a description for us? Amores Peros, or after I watch this and Old Boy and Elephant Man all back to back, we'll call this 
I'm going to need to go to therapy. Uh, this is going <laughs> to be too much, Jason. Too much. Too much. <laughs> we do have some intense films on our list. I'm not going to say otherwise. Yeah, yeah. Amore Sparrows is a bold, intensely emotional, here we go, an ambitious story of lives that collide in a Mexico City car crash. Inventively structured as a triptych of overlapping and intersecting narratives, Amore Sparrows explores the lives of disparate characters who are catapulted into unforeseen dramatic situations, there we go again, instigated <laughs> by the seemingly inconsequential destiny of a dog named Coffee. Yes, and for those who don't know, uh, Amores Peros translates to love is a bitch. Love is a bitch. Yeah. So now, Ryan, have you seen this film before? Uh, I have, yeah, several times. After I saw this, this was one of those movies I made all of my friends watch. Totally, Um, same. Again, this predates streaming. Uh, This came out in 2001. So... You know, this was, it's really easy when things like RRR catch on now because everyone could just watch it whenever they want and they're in the sanctity of their own home. It's on Netflix, blah, blah, blah. But back then, there was a certain joy to coming over to your friend's house with a DVD and being like, dude, we got to watch this. And you feel like a stud because <laughs> you found something cool. And uh, I was one of the nerdy kids that knew about foreign cinema where all my friends were going to Blockbuster. So yeah, this was a cool one that... Uh, I got to showcase around and parade around, so I got to see this a few times. But I will say, I have not seen this in a long time. A long, long time. Like, probably 15 years. So Awesome, man. Cool. Yeah, well, I'm certainly looking forward to it here, and you should look forward to it as well. Go ahead and watch Amores Peros ahead of our next episode. Can't thank you enough for spending time with us here at Esoterica Cinema. For Jason Peters and Ryan Siebold, We will see you next time. Enjoy the movies.